In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your outstanding host, Tom Slotchik, and today we're going to have a great show for you. We're going to discuss Bloodborne. We're going to open by talking about the 2015 video game before breaking down the subsequent card and board games. Quick side note before we actually start the show, I will read whatever is written on the script, and if it is like spelled wrong, like it just throws me all out, and we have to throw out a whole open and do it all over again. It's just... You know, that's the magic of podcasting. You'd never guess that I screw up because, you know, all you hear is the final product. Good times. And the magic the magic of co-hosting is that I realized you screwed up and I fixed the typo for your next read-through. Yeah, I mean, this show would be absolutely horrible without Burns. I don't think I need anybody else to do it well. Like, no one else could possibly add any value to this show. And with that, I'm thrilled to introduce our co-host for our Bloodborne episode. It's Hobbybox, Joe Burns. Hey, uh. And unfortunately, we also have Brian Camille with us. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Perfect. Welcome, Dr. Nick Brian Camille. Welcome to the show, guys. Now, Burns, you haven't been on this show since January. It feels like a lifetime. What have you been up to in the last couple months? Um, work has been busy. Uh, I've been playing quite a few things for the various segments of the podcast. And, um,. Mostly, though, I have been playing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of Final Fantasy XIV online. Uh, since February 13th, I have played 157 hours of Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, so the month before that was maybe another 40 hours. So in the last two months, we are recording this on April 16th. In the last two months and about three days, you've played 150 hours. That is near seven full days yeah I, I i've been on a roll i've been mowing through the story i am caught up to the story as of last tuesday last tuesday was the most recent patch and i have to play through the main story our main scenario quest of that and i am caught up on the main storyline of the game and then it's just going through some of the side content stuff that are still like technically part of the main story uh, that I haven't really touched yet. And so that'll be what I'll be working on a little bit before Final Fantasy XIV Fan Fest, which is in mid-May, where they will talk more details about what's coming in the next expansion this fall. So Endwalker. Good Lord, Burns. I mean, I love Final Fantasy XIV. I would say it's one of my favorite games of the last console generation, like right up there with Spider-Man, God of War, like all the heavy hitters <clears throat> of the last console generation. But you are going off the deep end on this game. Like, how are you still so invested? Because you were already, like, a month into this game. And not, like, a month of playing it casually. Like, a month of nonstop play, and then you dumped 150 more hours into it. Yeah, I'm at, like, 32 hour, 32 days and 8 hours right now in the game total. Uh, it's the story. Like, the story is so freaking good now that I just, I need to see where it's at because I don't want any little kernel of it spoiled for me now. Like I got to that point where I was so close to caught up 
and I knew like people were glowing about Shadowbringers, the last expansion, and the story content in there, and and they were right. Like it is so freaking good, especially not just for an MMO. Like it is like by Final Fantasy standards, just so intriguing and interesting what they do with all of the characters, the enemies, the world. Uh, it's just fascinating what they're building towards and the entire arc from when they started the game, then rebooted the game, the entire arc is going to end with the next expansion and then it's going to start a new arc after that expansion. And so I'm really interested to see how they wrap everything up with the story that they've been building for, what, 13 years now, I believe it's been. Well, it's really interesting that you that invested in the story because I put a fair amount of time into this game and it was all Realm Reborn and the story and the base game is absolutely forgettable. Like, I remember the one dude was possessed by another dude and that made him a douche. Like, I yes. loved that game because it was super duper fun to play and the exploration was awesome. Like, give me a strong narrative in it too and like I could totally see myself going off the deep end like you did. Yeah, you're like, you stopped playing the main scenario quest like right as it starts to pick up heaven's word, which is the next expansion after realm reborn, which you finish uh, is really, really good. Stormblood is a little bit of a step down. I still really liked it. Uh, and then Shadowbringers is just really good. I don't want to try to like overhype it, but it is phenomenally good. And especially like how it all ties up with the 5.3 patch on um, the story stuff that they did in there is just, insanely effective and really 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 well done it's 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 hard to like try not to overstate it but it is that good i i enjoyed it so much well i'm glad i quit before it got good that is one of the joys of having a <laughs> podcast and preparing for five hours on mic every month yes 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 that would that would have derailed things yeah well good times brian it has been even longer for you you haven't been on since our castlevania episode last year what crappy old games have you been playing lately it's it's been a little bit of everything right now. Um, the the wife and I are going through um, the 3D Mario All Stars. So for all the good and the bad of it, I mean, it, some of the best music and there's some still like really cool moments from the 64 version. I had never played Mario Sunshine, so that's been kind of a new experience. Um, Galaxy is probably the best thing on that particular uh, package. But man, what I used to think were amazing control when it came to like camera. Holy mother, is that archaic and clumsy and difficult to remember? Okay, Hobby, remember when we were talking about how Miles Morales, when Spider-Man's up on the wall, and it's like you have combat against the camera to get the thing to do what you need it to do? It's, uh -huh. it feels, I'm playing an entire Mario game where it's like that. And it's like, dude, just work <laughs> with me for two seconds. Um, so that's been that's been a ride. Um, I started dabbling a little bit in Red Dead Redemption 2 because I, I've waited two years now. And it's probably time that I should start to play a little bit of that. And it's nice because that's a game where I can kind of pick it up, put it down, pick it up. Um, I've been playing a lot of Borderlands 3 right now as we're kind of preparing for the upcoming podcast. And that super dangerous uh, game loop of murder something, throw out 99% of the gear you got because it's trash and didn't have the anointment that you want, spawn out, spawn back in, do it again. It's it's got the hooks in me, so I'm I'm trying to be reasonable with my time in that game. Um, and then the last thing, Kelsey and I picked up the Super Mario 3D World uh, Bowser's Fury. So we haven't got to the Bowser's Fury portion yet, but we've already played through 3D Mario Land once, and going through it again is honestly just as much fun. Um, it does create moments of us 
fighting maybe more than I would like because we'll both try to jump over a hole and we'll intersect in the middle and one of us dies. And like, I understand that a lot of this stuff is just like, it happens. Oh, I accidentally killed you. I'm sorry. Kelsey is convinced that like I had planned it for most of the level and I just waited for that moment and I stuffed her down the hole. She died <laughs> and I'm just reveling in it. Why would you do that to me? It's like, I'm just trying to live. Okay. I'm just trying to get past this Goomba. Um, so it's, it's it's marriage counseling essentially <laughs> so that's been smooth so brian um, you and i have been friends for a very yeah. very long time like upwards of two decades or more we've been friends for a very long time yeah. i've played smash brothers with you before and i would mm -hmm. say that your wife is probably on to you i'm not trying to kill kelsey in a cooperative game in smash brothers Aren't the you? goal is to kill you you are to die that's the goal now that said um I couldn't play a game like this with Greg and Joe. My, so for all of you that do know me and don't know me, I have two younger brothers, they're identical twins. They're 12 years younger than me. And I remember as kids, we were trying to play the new Super Mario Brothers with them. And my brother-in-law, Nick, and I quit because they took more interest in the ability to throw each other down a hole and anybody else they could grab. We never got through the first level. We lost <laughs> all of our guys <laughs> before we got like halfway through World 1. So the... The Camille men clearly have some sort of genetic deficiency, um, but it, it doesn't come into play when I play with Kelsey, so that's good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can see their resemblance to you, my friend. Now, you're a guy it with, sucks. You're, it sucks. You're a guy <laughs> with pretty good twitch reflexes. How do your brothers rate against you? Better. Um, oh, that must be so annoying. Yeah. I used to be able to take both of them on in melee at the same time and kill both of them. Half a guy left. It's gotten to the point now, Greg Greg is significantly better than me. Um, I can take some games from him, but the longer we play, the more one-sided it's going to get because he plays a really aggressive style. And once he gets into a rhythm, you're, you're dying super early because he's, he's doing a lot of spiking. Joseph always chooses the character that he can be across the screen from you, throwing cats, dogs, the, the kitchen sink, whatever he can throw at you. So that by the time that you get there, you're maimed and bleeding and dizzy, and then he can land the killing blow, which is just an annoying way to play with someone. So I try not to play with Joey as much. And I try not to play with any other human beings. I'm not a big fighting <laughs> game fan. Clearly with your opinions on multiplayer, you're like, nope, I'm not really interested in anybody outside of my bubble. I'm good. Yeah, well, you know, I like the people in my bubble. The people inside my bubble are fun. Everyone else is an a and that bubble gets smaller as we get older and smaller and smaller until you're in a room with yourself and you realize the person you hate is just you. <laughs> well, Phoenix says my bubble is a good size. Sure, Tom. <laughs> it's quite average for Eastern Asia. Yep, it's a good size. Before we get into our show, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Visit their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. If you're interested, you can follow us on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Tom Sidlachik OIO. Follow the Hobbybox at HobbyboxBurns on Twitter and Twitch TV slash HobbyboxBurns. Or follow the show at Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. Brian, do you have anything on social that you'd like to plug? Not a dang thing, my friend. Great. Not a thing. <laughs> Great. Well, let's talk about video games. We start with Bloodborne. 
the From Software game that was originally released in March of 2014. It gives you a Souls experience in a gothic horror setting. The core gameplay loop involves exploring areas, fighting enemies, leveling up, and battling larger-than-life bosses. One of the core elements in any Souls game is risk. As you fight enemies, you earn souls, or in this game, blood echoes, and you use those to level up. If you die, your souls or your blood echoes drop where you fell, and enemies respawn, and you have to fight your way back. If you get back to the spot and or kill the enemy who bested you, you get to retrieve your souls. If you die on the way, they are gone forever. Now, coming into Bloodborne, how familiar were you guys with the Souls formula? We'll start with you, Joey. Uh, so I've, I, I mean, I know a lot about them, but I, I've never really played any of the Dark Souls games. Uh, I've actually probably watched more people play Dark Souls than, like, I've played of any of them, including Demon Souls and Bloodborne. Because uh, it is interesting to see people who really know how to play the game, like see them interact with those games. Um, it's also kind of fun to see someone who's maybe not so great struggle, uh, as long as it's not me that's doing the struggling. Uh, otherwise, Bloodborne's the one I've put the most time into. Uh, I've put I put like seven or eight hours into the Demon Souls remake on PS5. I, I think I played a little bit of that way back when it came out um, on PS3, but just couldn't get into it. Uh, and yeah, so Bloodborne is really the most that I've played. And uh, out of all of us on the podcast, I've probably played the least of it. Uh, we'll get into some of the reasons why. Um, and it's not just because I put 150 some hours into Final Fantasy 14 recently. I think it's it, it's it's a, it's a really interesting game. And I think it's a really it's probably Bloodborne is probably the best fit for me of how like the Souls games would be, how they would play. Because it's a little bit faster combat. It's not as plotting, methodical, block, dodge. You know, it's, it's a lot faster. And, and that just sort of fits with my play style with games in general, I think. Sure. And Brian, where were you coming from with this game? This was my first From Software anything. So it, I came in as a completely blank slate. Um, Bloodborne's super interesting for the fact that our friend John Munch had said it's a game where you might b- bounce off it a couple times. What he meant was you play it, you get frustrated, you say, F this, I'm not going to play it. And then you come back a little bit later when you've calmed down. Um, the first experience that I had with this, the younger brother Gregory had suggested it to me. This is <clears throat> this is months before our friend groups played it. And I couldn't get past the first level where you go down these stairs and there's a large group of enemies surrounding a bonfire. And I honestly didn't think that I would come back to the game because I couldn't get past them. I couldn't get any, I couldn't level, I couldn't maintain items. I thought, I'm like, what a stupid game. This is what they, they, they built a janky broken thing that nerds (laughs) like virtue signal that they beat it. Like, what's the point of this? So I didn't, I didn't understand it. And coming through it and getting into the loop like you talked about okay so you we go through the level and we kill enemies and we get these echoes and it's it's really cool because you can then open shortcuts that get you back to where you are now through a much shorter method and i unfortunately just like joe had mentioned i'm also playing demon souls for the ps5 and by the way kid have you guys both played that one no i played a couple hours of demon souls back when it came out and i openly loathed that game 
if you get a chance to, it is visually stunning. It is a beautiful game. And if Bloodborne, the rumor is they're going to get the treatment to Bloodborne, it's going to get this treatment sometime later this year or released. That's the hope. Um, that said, just like Joe, this this might ruin me to Demon Souls because Demon Souls is so slow, it's so clumsy, it's so block. Wait for the enemy's animation. Attack. Like, yeah, it sounds boring as I say it because it is. <laughs> this this one fits how I like to play a game so much more, and I don't think I'm going to be able to go to the Souls games because of it. That's so fascinating. I like the methodical pace of the Souls games. The game I've played the most is the original Dark Souls remastered, and I got really into that, and I made kind of a stupid build, so I'm I'm deep into the game, and I'm not ready to restart because I don't want to go through all that again, but I don't know if my build is good enough to push through to the end, so that's a really challenging spot that I'm in. But I like... I like the methodical pacing to these games, both with exploration, like slowly prodding, finding out where the guys are hiding around the corners, finding out where all the traps are, and then like learning how to best that. And I kind of like the combat to be in that same methodical pace. Block, dodge roll, hit, block, hit, block, dodge roll, hit. I don't know. For me, it worked. But coming back to Bloodborne... The reason I like Bloodborne is because it's, it's as much twitch reflux as it is my planning. Because if you just go in just trying to go fast, you're going to die. And if you just go in trying to be smart about what's going to happen, you're going to die. You kind of have to do both. And that's the part I like. I like the stressing of both areas. Sure. Well, what is it that stood out to us after this game? We'll set the stage a little bit. Joey, you said you were 10-ish hours into it. I uh, 13, actually, after last night. 13. I am uh, probably around the 30 mark. I made it to, uh, gosh, I can't, uh, the Unseen City, which... Brian, you and our other friend said I was roughly halfway through. Brian, mm-hmm. you beat this game. You went into New Game Plus. So maybe let's start with you. What stood out to you, Brian, about and what got your hooks into you about this game? So going through New Game Plus, it's remarkable how much different it is to play this game now than it was the first time through. Because Bloodborne, and from what I'm understanding from other people that played the Soul series, it's all about learning from the mistakes that you made. So it's so funny how much differently I approach certain levels. Like there's certain levels that I won't even go. I'll fight some of the enemies on New Game Plus through an area, but I'll go right to the shortcut because it just makes, it lets me have encounters that are more enjoyable a lot quicker. So you actually move through the game at such a rapid pace. It took a while to get the mechanics of the game figured out. And this is not a game that holds your hand. I can see the value and I can see how people enjoy this, hey, you go figure out the experience kind of thing. I also see it as something that's really detrimental to someone playing through it. Well, I want to add, this is one of the biggest things that stood out to me in this entire game. They made the opening area really punishingly difficult. You cannot start gaining levels in this game until you find the first boss. And there, is, there are a lot of enemies between you and that boss. And it is super duper frustrating. And I had played Dark Souls before. I played a little bit of Demon Souls. I played a bit of Sekiro. I played a bit of Neo. Like, I played a lot of these style games before. And that this is easily the hardest open to any of them. Well, and I also think it's not just the enemies that can be hard about that first area, but there are just some weird side paths that you can go down and just go in like almost a complete wrong direction to get towards like the actual first boss. And I think that's the other weird thing about the starting area is that, yes, it doesn't handhold you. You can wander down those side paths and find all these weird 
different enemies and areas that you just don't to, to get where you could have probably like crit pathed it to there a lot faster, uh, which is I think fascinating. But from like an intro standpoint, it is hard to onboard through that uh, through that process because you're like, well, when am I getting to like when I can do anything? Because I took like a different direction and I'm walking through all these areas and it's like, well, I'm getting all these blood echoes, but what do I do with them? Like I could just go buy a bunch of blood vials, but those are maxing out now. And so it's just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do until finally I stumbled into where the boss was. And it's like, I, I find I go back to the main area and, oh, I can level up now. Now it makes sense. And I can fix my friggin' weapon. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so... If, if they're trying to do it so that it was the concept of you kind of discover it, you grow through the pain of it, I, it's an under, I understand that. That's, that's an artistic choice. To me, they made some decisions that were to make that game as either difficult in reality or artificial difficulty. Artificial difficulty is simply putting things between the player and the eventual goal that it's not actually something that is hard, but like they keep it confusing, they keep it super vague, so that you essentially waste time. And yes, you're kind of learning throughout that process, but this game, I have met more people that have quit playing this game early because of the choices that they did on that first portion of the game. I don't view that as a rite of passage. I view that as poor game mechanics. I, I, I understand that they had a vision that they wanted you to kind of be in the crucible and come out the other side. We had friends in our friends group that... It was such a tedious and unevolving experience that they dropped the game and they quit permanently. They quit permanently. My our friend Brandon Casper, he's been on with us before. Brandon quit this game four times. And at one point he finally he finally got into it. And I started grabbing comments that he had made from early, like months early in our chat box showing what he had said. Oh, this game is stupid. Oh, I'm not going to pick it up. Oh, this thing is janky. Uh, it's just all oh, this just this venomous because like we're just frustrated because we're not we don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the inability Do you guys feel that way? Absolutely. Like the inability yeah. yes. to level is the most egregious part of it because like you know, you get to that first boss and you're going to die. You do not have the tools to beat that boss. And so, like, you're probably not going to beat it on the second try. So those souls are gone. And you banked all these souls yeah. from all the enemies that you painstakingly fought to get to the boss. And uh, I disagree. Well, Brian, you have accused this game of being poorly designed. I disagree. I think this game is a masterpiece from a design standpoint. But I do think that this opening level was not executed as well as it could have been. Uh, like a little bit more signposting on a couple of the things or maybe a couple more notes in the hunter's dream to, to just give you a little bit something more that you know like challenge yourself in order to move forward or something like any little thing to sort of get you to say okay i have to like push it to be able to get to the things that i'm looking for just that little bit would help and like, I, I know it's easy to say now that we have the internet and there's wikis and there's walkthroughs all over the place. It's easy to say, well, the community is going to do that for people. But is that really something that game designers should depend upon? Like, that's one of my knocks against Minecraft is, is that it doesn't really tell you how to do anything. You got to look at a friggin' wiki to see how to, how to build anything in that game. And, and I, I don't know. I just think that's I think that's to some extent 
if not poor game design, it's just, it's a decision that's made, but I, it's not very, it, it breaks the immersion, I think to some extent. And that's why I've avoided using walkthroughs until I get to a boss and I can't figure out what I need to do. And then I'll look it up. But otherwise from like an exploration standpoint, I don't want anything to ruin exploration uh, because that's like what I love about this game. And I, I don't, I don't want us to spend too much time on the opening area because the opening area is actually such a different experience than the rest of the game itself. So that said, the beginning was frustrating. It takes a while to get to the first boss. It doesn't let you level right away. But the mechanics of the game, I agree with you, Tom. The game's a masterpiece. The mechanics of the game are so much fun because, again, it, you have this beautiful balance between aggressive risk and death. And this game is very enjoyable for me as hard as it is because i know i'm supposed to die it's one thing if like oh you keep screwing up in the game and you keep dying and you can't figure it out it's another when you know it's okay to die because as long as you learn from it you're in a better place yeah let's set this up just a little bit you guys both said that this game is a better fit for you than other souls games other souls games are typical like kind of fantasy trope you're a dude with a sword and a shield uh going through the castle and fighting skeletons and stuff in this game you, your second weapon is a gun. You have a main melee weapon, which has a crazy variety to it. And then you also have a gun and everything is more fast paced. It's much more about speed and agility than brute power blocking and uh, just overpowering your enemies. For sure. And actually, they actually give you a shield in this game to show you how pointless it is to have a shield. <laughs> it's a very unique design choice. So the the most fun you, that I have in this game, and I know that some people struggle with figuring out the windows because, again, it's they don't really tell you, is the parry system. So for those of you that have not played, you have a, uh, a, a main hand and an offhand. Main hand is going to be whatever main attacking bladed typically weapon you're going to choose. The offhand is going to be a, usually a firearm, but you can have a torch, some other things. And if you fire off your revolver or your blunderbuss at the right moment in an enemy's animation, you open them up to what's called a visceral attack, which is this huge attack that does lots and lots and lots of damage. And once you get these parry windows kind of figured out, you can just stylishly just shred things and it's so satisfying to hit those windows except in certain cases there's this gigantic pig that if you get a visceral attack on it it kind of drops on its front legs but if you're standing behind it from all i can tell you essentially shove your arm up its rectum and then you do something to its lower intestine that is horrible and then you rip it back out and my wife saw it and she got up and left the room and she did crosswords in the other room and i was lonely and it was, I mean, that's more of a personal opinion on things, but there's this, it was kind of gross. But in, in most of the ones, it's it's a satisfying thing. The atmosphere is phenomenal. Um, just wonderful. Coming back to the parrying, like, I never got the feel for it. I don't know if it's because of my crappy twitch reflexes or what, but, like, I never got a feel for parrying, so I just never did it. Like, my, all my crits came from, like, rolling, getting behind, doing a charged attack, and then they'll let you get a free backstab after that if you get a powerful attack on the enemy's backside. Yeah, I mean, it's the same for me. I have been able to successfully parry 5% of the times I've attempted it. And and so I still haven't figured out what that window is, what the tell is. It, it's very possible I'm just not noticing it yet. 
and that that might come. But that is something that has been a struggle. So if I end up using a firearm, it's going to be either failing at trying to parry or B, I did damage and rolled away from something and it's almost did. So I just sit there and until it dies from a distance. Like that's kind of how I've approached things, Uh, except for maybe a couple of more recent fights where I've tried to mix it up a little bit to varying success uh, or actually no success yet. But there are, there are going to be certain bosses that you have to parry them. You have to have the parry windows to correctly, not even correctly, just to beat them. But there is, I can see what you're saying, though, because there is some inconsistency to some of these parry windows. I will swear that I hit that window just right, and I still get smoked with a you know, a giant swinging a brick at me. And if you miss a window and you have not got a lot of points into life yet, you're dead. Yeah. There's, there's room for error the more the game goes on because you, you build up a lot of life early on. One hard hit, you're down. Yeah, and that is what turned me off from pairing altogether. Like, now I'm much further in the game, and I can absorb a couple of shots from most enemies, but, like, I just, I've learned to live without the parry, and at this point, I'm not going back to it. (laughs) Let's move on from pairing. Let's talk about the atmosphere of this game. They have a system that I think is just genius. I don't know how exactly to set this up without, like, spoiling the entire game, but as you're going through the game, like, you realize that, you start with a perspective and your perspective is not seeing all of reality or Brian, maybe you can explain this a little bit better having beat the game, but there is what's called an insight system in the game. And as you play more, you gain more insight. And as you gain more insight, you see like the city of Yarnum basically transforming and that there's all these horrible monsters that you just weren't aware of at first. And that's not the only way that insight alters the game. So insight is something that you'll pick up. Like you'll pick up these skulls on the ground and it'll be like, a madman's knowledge or knowledge of the great ones. And that's definitely a nod to Lovecraftian lore. So that alone kind of sets the table for maybe not understanding. You think that Yarnum is just getting overrun by beasts. That's what it appears to be. You get there, monsters all over the place. That's what it is. But as the game goes on and you gain this insight, insight can be used as a currency, but it actually fundamentally changes how the game works too. Because as the game goes on, the more insight you have actually changes how enemies attack you. So say you have a 20 insight and you're running around Cathedral Ward, enemies suddenly have the ability to to shoot you. They suddenly are developing like magical abilities that you couldn't see before because your insight's higher. So it's a very unique thing. Later on in the game, once we go through some kind of big changes, you are aware of what kind of monsters are all over Yarnum. And the insight system is really cool because it, it lets you debate, hey, do I want to use this as a currency right now, or you know, do I want to spend this on blood shards, which is an upgradable, um, it's a material that's used to upgrade your weapons. It's this kind of fun dynamic. Do I want do I want to spend this, or do I want to see farther down the rabbit hole? And it's a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, and I think, so that's the one thing I was wondering about with the insight then. Like, so does it make sense to not spend it at first? So I know, for instance, when I got my like biggest chunk of it was when I beat Father Gascon, which is like the second boss in the game. Like after I did that, I could buy his gear, which is, it seems like it's an upgrade for me. Should I not spend that? And should I bring it for longer? Like as a newer player, like how is the way that I should interact with that system? Should I use it as a currency? Should I wait to see? Like what do you, what would your recommendation be, Brian? Use it as a currency because you're going to get 
so much more as the game goes on. And to be honest, when it comes to the armor, our our friend Scott said it well. It's essentially like Fashion Barbie Bloodborne. That's what you're doing. It's the it doesn't the the costume styles don't really change too much the priorities of what you're dealing with to make something better than something else unless you're going through an area that has like heavy poison and this has some more poison resistance or this has more frenzy resistance but even that is kind of a mitigated thing yeah I it's found, all about the style and what you like i found mid-game that i was switching armor constantly just to combat the foes and like the area that i've been whether it's fire resist or frenzy resist or poison resist like mid-game i found i was having a lot of or a lot more trouble with status effects Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I, I haven't spent any of it yet because I just wasn't sure. Um, and I have another friend completely independent of, of like this friend group that's been playing through it that like the only thing he's played from a video game standpoint in the last few years is Madden. That's about it. Uh, and he jumped into Bloodborne because he really liked, well, he likes like Lovecraft and just horror in general. Uh, and he really got into Lovecraft country. And so he was looking at games that had that aesthetic and he bumped into Bloodborne and he asked me, he was like, do you think this is something that I would be, I would like, what have you heard about this game? And I was like, okay, it's going to be a ride. It's going to be very, very hard. Uh, but you just got to sort of roll with it. Uh, he started playing it. He struggled. He picked up like a walkthrough that he really liked and used that to kind of guide him. He put 66 hours in the game and beat it. Um, and was telling me like how, this game has made him look at video games in a completely different way because it's just the like the things that we're talking about, how the design sort of impacts everything and just the development of what you see and how that builds as the game goes on is just incredible to him. And, and so he was just mesmerized by it. He's already like starting to play it on New Game Plus 2 uh, and, and just wants to see more of how the game works. That's the why. game's super weird because you begin with this concept of what you thought the world was like. You thought Yarnum was just overrun with beasts and these people are crazy and it's like almost like a Resident Evil kind of feel. Like It's just a cluster F. As the game goes on, you realize that something horrible happened here. The Soulsborne series, I understand, you learn more about the story the lore of the world by actually reading more of the item district uh the item descriptions the costume descriptions the weapon descriptions just random pieces of material in the world do you guys know much about the story of this game virtually nothing what i have uh picked up was that blood is good and bad uh yeah <laughs> i I've, I've picked up a little bit more maybe than that uh, it's like the, the biggest thing that I'm struggling with is there's so many different people telling me so many different things and I don't think I can actually trust anybody. <laughs> and so it's like, I'm helping these people and telling them to go to this chapel, but I feel, I have a feeling this, this beast that's in the chapel is just going to eat them, but maybe this is a good thing to do. I don't know. It, it does some interesting things with choice that I really have no idea if I'm actually helping these people or hurting them, or if I'm helping everybody, hurting everybody, I have no idea what I'm doing to these folks. And yeah, I just very little bit know about what's going on around me in Yarnum, uh, like 1% of what's happening. Well, I'll just, I'll give you a, a short breakdown of just kind of how the story worked. The 
underneath Yarnum, they essentially found what's called the Chalice Dungeons, which is where you actually can do some of the online gameplay of like playing co-op and like running through the world. It's super fun, um, though clunky. The they found something down there that essentially was like one of the great ones. So if you guys know like your Lovecraftian knowledge, like Cthulhu is a great one. These are the ancient gods. And apparently at some point, all of these ancient gods ascended to this thing that this this reality that was beyond what humans could understand. And what happened was they started bringing up like the blood of these creatures and they started using it and like learning from it. And what happened was the blood had these insane healing powers to it. So what was happening is the people of Yarnum were starting to develop these unusually long lifespans. They had perfect health, increased intellect, all of this stuff. But what they did not know as time was going on, the blood also had an infection to it. And it started to turn these peoples into beasts. So if you can remember like the, the college, Blindworth College or whatever it's called, they were the ones that started looking at the blood. A guy named Lawrence left there to start the church. And this church started giving it out to everybody and it started causing massive problems so if you guys went to old yarnum you saw that entire place was burned to the freaking ground because old yarnum is where they started using the blood first it became so destroyed by something called the ashen sickness which was turning people into beasts they burned it and left they went to new yarnum and as time goes on these hunters started to work for the church to go out and kill these beasts, which is what you are. You're a hunter. That's why you encounter them in, out in the uh, the world. But what happens is these people don't realize what they're turning into. And it, at this point, this place is a rotting husk. So every creature you see in this game used to be a, a normal citizen and this is the fall of Yarnum. that's why when you're walking around and you see these coffins that are chained they have these massive chains and padlocks they're trying to keep these dead bodies from coming back due to the infection they're terrified of them they're burning anything that they can to try to purify themselves of whatever this sickness is that they still haven't figured out is related to the blood and at the best part of all of it if this game this is one of those games where you look at the atmosphere, the lore of it, you just really appreciate we have not developed the technology to smell the environment that your character is walking <laughs> through. I will say the the most frustrating thing in the game are the chain coffins because you can't roll through those, but you can roll through all the other ones. Um, because I definitely have Diablo 3 syndrome where if I see anything that's breakable, I have to roll through all of it uh, over and over and over again, even though like like only 1% of the time you actually find something. Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure that at some point it's going to actually be a trap underneath some of that stuff and it's going to kill me, but it's going to be worth it because I have to break everything. I just had bull in a china shop. That's how I play this game. Yeah, I'm more of a Diablo 2 gamer. I like to smash the pottery from far away, but I agree. Everything breakable must be broken. We must know what is inside. Uh, yes, yes. That's kind of tangential to one of the things that stood out to me with the game. There's a little bit of jank to it that occasionally just drove me crazy. The biggest thing was environmental. There would be things that I couldn't move through, I couldn't attack through, but the enemy could hit me through them. Like the Father Gascon fight in particular in a graveyard was super duper frustrating because like he could smack me through gravestones and I kept like, I'd roll into them and I'd get stuck. I'd try to run around them, I'd get stuck. I'd try to attack them, I'd get stuck and get... Uh, that's the most egregious example of it, but I noticed it a few times through the game that, and it just, 
it was one of the low points of the game for me. It was just kind of the environmental jank. That Father Gascon fight, you can actually use, you can cheese him pretty hard because there's a couple of gravestones that he can't break. But if you've got the hunter's axe and you've got that thing in it's it's the the double-handed elongated mode, uh, you can wail on that dude and he can't touch you. So it's it's interesting because enemies also get caught on some of the environment too. So it's 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 weird how that can affect how you approach something by just trying to get somebody stuck on like a statue. Well, you mentioned the hunter's axe. I never use that. Let's spend some time talking about our favorite weapons. I'm going to start this one off because I used the coolest weapon. I used the cane whip. It was easily my favorite, but uh, well, I used I mostly used the saw cleaver. I thought the cane whip was one of the coolest, most stylish weapons like in any game, uh, but it just wasn't quite powerful enough, and eventually I had to roll to the saw cleaver for the increased damage. But uh, I, was, I started building up my skill stat because I was using the stupid cane, and there's only, I think, three weapons that really use skill, at least that I've unlocked so far, the saw cleaver, the cane and uh, oh, the spear, I think, all use it. And unfortunately, once I was locked into that build, like I was, I was set. What did you guys start, or what did you find yourselves using? The saw cleaver uses skill. It sure does. I've been like putting everything into strength, um, but I've been using the saw cleaver, and I enjoy it uh, quite a bit. I think uh, most. I think that it uses both strength and skill. There are only a handful of weapons that have a higher skill rating than strength. So I think I think there is a benefit for strength with it, but I think it's higher with skill, or it's one of the it's one of the best uses of the skill stat. Gotcha. And so so yeah, and the reason why most recently, so the last night when I was playing, uh, I put a bunch of it into into strength. Uh, because I purchased the Kirk hammer and have been messing around with that. But at this point, I'm so used to the saw cleaver and like the enemies are really fast that I'm, I'm fighting right now. And so I'm sticking with that for the mobility uh, to be able to just hit them. And then, because uh, it, it's interesting, like, because so one of the big mechanics of it is you hit the L1 button to switch your weapon. Uh, so you switch it from one mode into another mode. And that's actually what we'll talk about later uh, is especially one of the like core aspects of the board game uh, that they sort of play off of a bit. Uh, but I think it's really interesting because you're switching it from uh, at least in the saw cleaver standpoint, it's really fast. Like you can just do lots of slash, 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 and then you switch it to be a longer sort of more strength kind of harder hitting attack, like an overhead ax kind of thing. And you do a side swipe too with it. Uh, and I think that's a really neat dynamic because I find myself, the moment I see an enemy, I switch it to the mode that I want to be in and go at them. And I try to move myself away from somebody else that I want to switch at the other and, and go after them. And I think that's really neat. Uh, the Kirk hammer is crazy though. It's a sword that you fight with a sword uh, kind of in one part of the switch. And then the second one, you put it on your back and it ends up being like, a huge honking gravestone kind of thing that you jab the sword into and you just hammer down on people in this huge lumbering motion uh, that I, 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 it does a lot of damage when you hit with it. It's super slow though. So it's trying to make sure you're only using it, I think in the right positions. And so I'm still sort of learning that one, but the saw cleaver for me right now is the one that I like the most. So the, the saw cleaver, I think, winds up being the main 
weapon for a lot of different people because it actually has some hidden attributes. Bloodborne, there's a ton of hidden things. Like, there's mechanics and there's damage multipliers that the game never tells you. And so, the Saw Cleaver does, I want to say, an additional 30% to beast enemies. That's why it seems like it's so effective because there's a lot of beast enemies in the game and you do a tremendous amount of damage to it. The Saw Cleaver... And then you have the Bone Spear. The Bone Spear also does it when it's in its opened mode, where the teeth are actually out. So skill is one of the attributes that we talk about. The Cane Whip uses skill. By the way, Tom, you're 100% right. When the Cane Whip has been, when he's when your character is compressing it back into a cane, I love that animation where they just pick it up, they snap it so that they line up, and they stomp it into the ground. It's just, it's just a sweet thing to see. But those, the, the skill, the attribute skill has other effects on it too. It's not just to use with some of these weapons. Skills what affects your visceral damage. The more skill you have, the higher the visceral damage. That's so, how that works. So you're saying that me never, ever, ever parrying and having a super duper high skill isn't an effective way to play this game. No. Now here's the thing. <laughs> you can... You can, if, you, if you're playing bosses and say, like, it's one of the bosses where you have to, like, bust up their limbs so you get the visceral attack, and you got high skill, you're going to make mincemeat of some of those bosses. You can drop them in, like, two or three viscerals. So it's not like you're playing it wrong. Then there's, like, say, like, the Tonatrist. Did you guys ever get to that? It's like a, it's like a mace with electricity. Yeah. Super cool little item. Yeah. So the Tonatrist, what you find out is electrical attacks injure what's called kin. Kin is anything that is related to the old ones or in that family genealogy of the old ones. So if it's fire, it messes up the beasts. If it's electric, like the Tantris, it destroys the kin. Okay, so here's a question. Hopefully this isn't too spoilery, but like, there's aliens in this game. Like, are the aliens kin? Like, how do they fit in with the old ones? Yes, the the, the old ones are aliens, essentially. That's why the game is so weird, because you think you're fighting beasts. The old ones are essentially alien gods almost is what they are so you'll actually encounter things that fall much more into like a sci-fi typically alien subgenre than you would like some sort of vampiric model i want to take a real quick aside here we are thrilled to welcome in our good friend and two-time oio co-host brandon casper brandon welcome to the show my friend we can't hear you you're on mute and I'm not cutting that from the show, so don't even ask. Thanks for letting me jump on today. <laughs> I appreciate it. We have a very specific thing that we want to talk to you about, but first, you went into the deep end on Bloodborne. We're talking about our favorite weapons right now. What weapon did you use to get through this game? Uh, man, you know, I got stuck on the Hunter's Axe for a long, long time, uh, but the, uh, by the end of the game, I think my go-to was the Tantris. Um, I just love that I never had to charge it with uh, electricity at any point. Um, and yeah, a quick, uh, a quick R2 or whatever the heck, or L2, and you're in there just smashing anything you want, basically to do oblivion. So that, that was my, uh, big go-to weapon. Uh, what are your overall impressions of Bloodborne? We did mention you earlier in the show. We said you bounced off it a couple of times early on, but I think you were the first one to get through it. Plus new game plus. Yeah. So I, I, real hard um right away that the learning curve is is really really difficult and with the weapon that i chose it had a big leg as you're jumping into your first strikes and i would just get messed up on like the third or fourth guy and i 
must have happened a dozen times before I said, this just isn't fun. It, it took me literally a half an hour to get up the first ladder because I pulled that le lever, didn't see the ladder drop, and I'm running around for a half an hour saying, where do I go? Where do I go? <laughs> annoying right away but as soon as you get past um cleric beast and you die on the first time and you can start leveling that's when the game gets really really good so if anybody has bounced off it as hard as i have before you're even allowed to level get to the cleric beast start uh, getting a few soul um um, um souls uh echoes blood echoes so you can level up a little bit and from there uh, the game just takes off and Billy, it sounds like he's talking specifically to you on that point. So, Billy, you should play Bloodborne. <laughs> now, we've been talking all about Bloodborne, but uh, I want to change gears real quick. I have had a tremendous amount of fun poking fun at Brandon for his feelings towards Super Mario Odyssey. Brandon, you've been playing this game a lot recently, Super Mario Odyssey. What are your thoughts on it now? I wanted to invite you here to uh, kind of give a statement on how you feel about this tremendous game. I think you invited me here to apologize, and where I'm not going to apologize at this point, the game is a lot better um, that, than it originally was. Here, here was my issue with it, is as you're running around collecting all these moons, it felt no different to me than Mario 64, where you're basically collecting stars to get to the next, uh, to get to the next level, to open up the next board. When I got to New Donk City, that board was so ridiculously awful that I bounced off that so hard, I didn't pick it up for another year. I, I beat New Donk City, but before I went to the next place, I bounced off it. I said, if the next place is this bad, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to sleep at night. But that board was awful because you don't know if Mario, okay, so so Mario is your basic human, right? In, in Mario and in all the Mario games, he's your basic human. So once you hit New Donk City and you see all these people that kind of look like regular people are used like, Oh, is Mario some sort of mutated, like, little freak <laughs> show that's bouncing around everywhere? Because he's supposed to be your guy, right? He's supposed to be your human. And what you see, and now you see all these people, and it's like, well, now we know Mario's kind of a freak, right? And I just didn't, uh, I, I didn't appreciate that board at all. And I just, no. <laughs> but, but now that I've been playing a little bit more, I did beat the game. Uh, the final battle, Bowser's final battle, was super fun. Um, and then you get to jump into the Mushroom Kingdom and jump into a few pictures. And I'm like, hey, Mario 64 throwback. I knew it. I knew this was what they was ba were basing this off. So as soon as I got that, I, I got the nod that I needed. Um, I, I enjoyed the game a lot, a lot more. So you agree that it's a tremendous game? It's a lot better than I thought it was. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yes. It's real good. Uh, you, <laughs> you stated your hatred for New Donk City. How... Which board ranks lower for you, New Donk City or the opening area of Bloodborne? Oh, man. I tell you what, after beating the open area of, of Bloodborne and beating New Donk City, still New Donk City. Yeah, that one's still worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon, thank you so much for jumping in. It's great to get your take on this game, and uh, thanks for being a good sport with me poking fun at you for it for over a year. Really appreciate it. You got it. Hey, thanks, guys. Have a great night. See ya. Hold on real quick. Just because Brandon got off and he can't defend himself, I'm going to say this. I am 99% sure he told us that opinion on Mario after he was pretty drunk, dressed up as a Dalmatian puppy at Halloween, slurring, yeah, it's really the same. It's really just the same thing. He's dressed up as an adult dog, just wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like... 
I'm like, I can't take your opinion seriously. And he carried it to the next day, so I was like, oh, I guess I have to take it serious. But, like, it was it was pretty comical just to begin with. That was, that was a good party. I, uh, I look forward to when we can host our Halloween party again. It's going to be a good time. Good times. Coming back to Bloodborne, just a couple more things that I wanted to talk about. We talked about the story. We talked about the weapons of choice. My favorite aspect of this game was the exploration. And so I wanted to ask you guys what your favorite areas to explore were. Joey, you have the smaller sample size. Let's start with you on this one. To be honest, like I exploring any and every part of this game, I think has been an absolute joy. Uh, as someone who kind of famously now struggles with open world games, uh, but I do like exploring areas. Uh, like this game is like the perfect mix of there's enough different places to go and things to experience, but it's closed in enough that like you you don't ever like you don't ever have a want for where to go. And I think the other thing that's so good about it is I, I took a little bit of a break from it um, like for like two weeks uh, before I played again last night and I got back in and I it took me a second to remember where I had spawned out from. Uh, but once I spawned back in and I got outside and I looked around, I was like, okay. And I was instantly knew where to go. Um, they, the, the design of this thing is just so good of, of the different little areas to go down. And they use the horror so effectively because uh, there's so many times where you get to areas and once you get to like a boss encounter area, the fog comes up and you're like trapped there. I mean, I found out that you can use a mark to get out of there, um, but otherwise basically you're trapped in there and like that you, you get down to an area and you see it and you're like, oh shoot, that looks like this is where a boss encounter can happen. Do I go in? Do I not go in? I only have like 11,000 blood echoes. That's not quite enough to go back and do a lot. So I'm going to just take a couple steps in. Okay, nothing happened yet. There's a guy to kill. Kill that guy. Kill that guy. Take a few more steps. Okay, nothing happened. I'm safe. Uh, then you go around a corner. Something jumps out at you and you're attacking. You're like, ah, rah, rah. <laughs> and it's just like the balance of the enemies kind of being anywhere and everywhere many different paths that you can go down and and everything leads like somewhere except for when you get to a certain spot where it seems like okay this is going to open an entirely different area and it's like nope dead end here's a ladder to go right back up to where you were and it's just like it's so it's it's just like all of it is so rewarding i was talking about the opening area before uh and and how frustrating that kind of was i'm actually glad i went the complete long way around it because I got to just take in so much more of the of everything. And I was just like, like I'm banking up blood echoes. And I'm like, how am I going to get the heck back to where I was? <laughs> like, I don't remember like how, how to get any of these places. And it's funny because then I go back to that area now. And it's like, oh, okay. I go down here, take this ladder down, kill these dogs, uh, go over. This is where the gal was that was looking for a safe space. Go down through that area. I know exactly where each of the enemies are there go down into like the area that goes down to this. It's like, like the, even though you don't have a map, like I've been able to, because of how much you're going through the areas, you build the map in your head, uh, which leads me quickly to one other point is that like you're building up experience, right. And you're spending your blood echoes on experience, but 
like the most important experience is the experience you're building in your brain of how to attack these things, where different things are at, what are the best routes to go on when you're trying to get to point A or trying to get to point B or trying to get from point W back to point B. Uh, it's just so fascinatingly designed. It's so interesting. I love it so much. I hope we build all this agency through the entire game. Like we craft this character, we build all this knowledge and it all comes to a head at the end, the final boss. And then like, it's just a dude walking down a dock at you and then you don't get to choose. It's just a stupid cutscene that doesn't tell you anything. I hope that's how this <laughs> game ends. Please no Ghost Recon Wildlands. Please no. I was specifically referencing the medium in this case. Oh, that too. There is. Oh yeah. Oh crap. Yeah, there was that too then. Both I, terrible endings. I feel very similarly to Burnsy. My thoughts are not so elegant, so I will just succinctly say my favorite area was just outside of the chapel. There are these big giant dudes, a whole bunch of them around this little area, and that was one of the most satisfying parts of the game for me was building up my levels in there and making those guys manageable. Like Being able to take them down was tremendously satisfying for me. I still have not fought one of them, but very quickly I figured out the gates so when the one big lumbering guy walks out, run in, shut the gate so he can't get back. And then if you don't get close to those other two, once they're like standing, looking out over like the Vista, you can just sneak right by them. Uh, so I wandered around there for a while, not attacking a single thing through there just to sort of see what was over there and then peaced out and went the other direction and never went back because I'm too afraid of those guys. I probably killed those guys 250 times a piece like that. Oh, wow. That was like my core leveling area for a long time because you get a lot of, and you get a decent amount of echoes for it and super satisfying to do it. And I was just having a blast fighting those guys. And those, the churchmen are the guys in the white suits, white hat. The parry window on them is massive. So the second that they take their cane and they bring it up over their head, from the time that they pull it back to the time it hits you, all of that is free game for a parry window. So the second you hit them, you're cleaning up most of these guys in one hit. The Giants are unique. I just was playing last night. No, I'm sorry. This was last week. I was chatting about this with Scott. I found out you can actually visceral attack these guys. If you attack their right leg aggressively enough, their shin bone comes out, which is pretty gross at the time. But if you hit it enough... <laughs> They kneel down and you can pop them right in the face. So it's it's just neat how there's this dynamic in this game between being really scared of certain things. And then once you figure out how to kill it, it's really not so bad. But there's a weird thing that goes on in this game where the bigger an enemy is, typically the faster it can move with you, which is terrifying. Like when you were talking about creeping through an area, that it resonated with that so much because it's... The biggest problem when you see large open areas, I assume boss fight. That's the first thing I think of in this game. And that fog does not exist the first time that you walk into an area. Because I walked into the area against Father Gascon and thought, oh, it's a priest. He's a father. He's going to be fine with uh -huh. me. And what happened? Just like most priests, he aggressively started touching me. And then I didn't know what to do, and I died. So it... And if we had the fog been there, I would have been fine. But the fog wasn't there, and that happened to me. And I learned something. I did. We're still talking about the game, right, Brian? We're not having some deep, like... Yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic, Joe. Let's not get into it. Let's well, me not too. Let's not get into it. Um, so the, 
you you it also resonated with me when you said, look, it's more valuable what you learn to play. Like you under you get a better understanding of the mechanics of the game. The leveling just gives you it gives you more leeway in case you screw up, essentially. But you you hone that skill set, you build the kit, and then once you're good, you're you're mowing stuff down. I for one need a tremendous amount of leeway. Invest in life. That's the one you're gonna hit. Get that thing up to like level fifty-five. You'll be fine. I also liked Cathedral Ward because the, the architecture of the area is really cool. There is a lot of different kind of dynamic creatures that are very different from one another and how they operate. Just like you guys had mentioned, I absolutely love finding shortcuts. I think that is such a cool way to reward exploration. Is you push, 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 push. Oh my god, I'm gonna die soon. And then you flip a switch that lets you go back to the starting lamp. And I think that was such a neat reward system repeatedly to kind of work your way through. The other area that I really liked was Kanehurst. Tom, did you get to Kanehurst? Did you find it? No, not yet. I uh I, I don't know if I'm close or not. I've made it a fair way through the uns, Unseen City. I fought those three hunters in like the cathedral building where the bagmen were previously. And that's uh that's the last notable thing I think I did. You could go there now. But here's the thing that's weird about it. Kanehurst is in a completely optional area of the game that you would not know exists unless you randomly come across something. And there's a point in the game where once you get to what's called Rom, Rom is this big spider that we kill, and when Rom dies, it lifts the veil from Yarnum, and you realize there's all these aliens and this creepy stuff going on. If you beat him before you get this item, you can't get it anymore, and that's it. You're not going to Kanehurst, I believe. It's, it's, it's Rom that's the gatekeeper at that point. Kanehurst is this massive castle and it's amazing and it's cool and there's a really neat boss fight there but if you don't get it to the right point the game just says too bad is it the key master is that what you need to find you need to find it is a yeah a nice 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 ghostbusters reference (laughs) anytime we can talk about rick moranis i'm a pretty happy dude i took it seriously for two effing seconds i was like jesus no, it's the Kanehurst summons. You find it in Iosefka's clinic. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then you you will then you go to the area in um oh, the area where you fight the Hemlock Witches, Hemlock Lane, Hemwich or whatever it is, and you stand next to this big tombstone right before you go up to fight the witch, and the game goes to a cutscene, one of the few times it actually does. And a carriage picks you up, takes you away, and you enter in a completely different place. And it's it's amazing. It's it's a it's a cool segment because you it's so easy to miss, and it's one of the best places of the game. How on earth did people find this? Like, I have the Kanehurst summons. Like, how on earth did the first? I assume you found this on the internet, or somebody in our friend group found it on the internet and told you about it. Like, how did you find this freaking place, Brian? I, I think I was watching the Maximilian Maximilian dude the popular YouTuber did a lore run where he like reads every piece of everything in the game. It's like a 24 hour stream of him going through this whole game. And somebody had casually mentioned it. I was like, well, I wonder what, what is, what are they talking about? And, um, I looked it up, found it. And that's exactly how I found it. I didn't, I didn't discover it on my own. And the place with which to enact the cutscene, you would never have any idea that going to that one particular spot would do anything interesting and that's why it's so missable. 
Boy, what an unfortunate choice to put such a choice piece of content in such a random spot that, you know, I don't I don't enjoy looking things up on the internet and then going to execute it. Like, I like to wander around, touch everything I can find in a game, see what I can figure out, and then move on to the next thing. So, like, without this conversation right here, I never would have gone to Kanehurst. Bloodborne is a really vague game, so it's pretty par for the course, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's very apt. So, what is our overall impression of Souls games, having played Bloodborne? Like, are you guys going to go back, play any more, or was it one and done for y'all? Uh, part of me really wants to try some of them, but I will say that, like, my experience with Demon Souls is is making me sort of understand that I, I, I don't know that those games are for sure going to be for me as much as I'm enjoying Bloodborne. Um, and actually my experience with Demon's Souls is informing sort of how I'm playing Bloodborne. So, and I think I've talked about this on one of our unfiltered, but basically Demon's Souls, I got to a point where I broke my main weapon that I was using because I couldn't, and I still haven't unlocked how to fix the weapons yet. And so I got to the point where I, I didn't have a main weapon. So I was basically fighting with two shields uh, a shield on each arm and just attacking with that. Um, and it got to the point where I just, I couldn't, I, I had another weapon and it just, it wasn't clicking with me. I couldn't get enough like blood saved up or souls saved up in order to actually fix the thing, even if I could find out how to fix it. And I just bounced off the game and got so angry with it um, because I've realized that there is a frustration to fun ratio. And if that frustration gets to be too high, I will like just swear off a game for unforeseen amounts of time. And so what I've been doing is with Bloodborne, if I've gotten to the point where that frustration is getting higher and I'm not having as much fun with it, I purposely have been like, I can't play this for a while. Sit it away so that I can come back to it with fresh eyes and a fresh perspective and hopefully attack that again in a different way and and not burn myself out on it and so far that's been helping me because bloodburn is too good of a game i think to destroy the experience for myself the boiling over point is something i experienced too um the way that i would counter that in my gameplay i would then go farm find an area that there's a bunch of enemies like Tom was talking about in the Cathedral Ward where you start to kill some of these things and you get so good at understanding their attack patterns that you start to feel like a god. Do that for a little bit, vent it out, and then go back to that new place that's been kind of wailing on you because it gives you that little bit of perspective like, hey, you know what? I'm not where I want to be, but clearly I'm not where I was. Mm-hmm gives you a little bit of confidence too and like confidence can do great things for you uh I, one thing just springs to my mind there's an article in game informer a couple years ago that is perfect for needing a break from the souls games it's called the science of getting stuck by serial vasquez and he just uh he talked to a couple psychiatrists about like the psychology behind getting stuck in games and making breakthroughs and it's been a while since i've read it but uh really fascinating article the science of getting stuck by serial vasquez with game informer check it out Brian, I'll, I'll have to look that up. Brian, you think you'll play any more Souls games beyond this? I love Bloodborne. I'm happy I played it. It really... It's a masterpiece for all the reasons people have already said. I think... 
I'm struggling with Demon Souls for the reasons I'd already mentioned. It's a lot more slow. To me, it feels like, like a lot more waiting. And that is going to be a bit of a turnoff for me as I continue to play these games. If they start to move in a direction where there's just a little bit more of a speed aspect to it, because I like to play aggressively. That's generally most games I play. I like to make sure that I like to be the one that sets the tempo and make things have to react to what I'm doing. That's just what I enjoy. This one, this one really fit that play style. So if they do kind of move in that direction, I'm absolutely down for having this adventure again. The only thing about this that I really kind of drove me nuts was their online play. Did you guys do any of the online? Okay, basically the short version is it's hard to connect with your friends. They don't explain how to do it. There was a huge piece of this game that could have been even made this even better for me. But what I did enjoy, I will definitely go through this game again, probably. Well, you guys have both mentioned that Demon Souls, you don't like the plotting pace. I'm like, well, throw Demon Souls out the window then. Stop playing Demon Souls. Scratch that one. Like the Dark Souls remastered is awesome. Like it's really fun. I I haven't dabbled with two or three of Dark Souls, but I'm really excited to get to them at some point. I love this style of game. I can't get enough. And let me play Matchmaker here for a minute. Burnsy, the Hobby Box, play Sekiro. Sekiro will fit you perfectly. It has the fast, aggressive style. Brian, you'd like it too, but Brian, your match is Neo, which is not technically a From Software game, but it is very much in the Souls, uh, the Souls vein. It is an anime-infused like samurai revenge tale. And given your love of anime and your love of Bloodborne, I think you would go nuts for that game. Burnsy, Sekiro has a little bit more of a like samurai story to it, so I think that'd be a little bit more in your like lore wheelhouse. I think mm-hmm. you guys would love those two games. Yeah, I've wanted to try out Sekiro. I'm going to keep trying to play through Bloodborne and see if I can't actually finish it, because that would be quite the accomplishment for me, I think. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I've, I've been intrigued by Sekiro uh, just because of the setting of it uh, being like Japanese lore. I've heard... Uh, I've seen, should I say, some players playing just kind of a free-flow combat portion of Sekiro, and it looks cool, and some of the people I was watching is a very, very high level. It was really impressive to see how fast they could take things apart. Um, I think that's on my playlist here probably in the next so many months. Yeah, I really think, Brian, that you'll love Neo. It is a, it is a punishing game, but you, you beat Castlevania for Christ's sakes. Like You have such a penchant <laughs> for beating extremely difficult, twitch-intense, grindy games. Like I think... I think you were made for the Souls games. You just haven't found the other ones that kind of fit you yet. I can honestly tell you that beating Castlevania was one of my least fun experiences that I've ever had in a video game. I can promise you that. My God. And you play a lot of crappy old games, but I'm glad you played a more modern title in Bloodborne. Let's move on to our next segment. For our top five today, I'm going to turn it over to Brian to talk about his top five most loathed enemies in Bloodborne. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I'm going to cover my five. Uh, Five is dogs. 
dogs in this game are just inferior because they sit in the just the this the worst position strategically for the player is where the dogs are. You come downstairs, always oh, around the corner. There's five dudes. Oh, they got a dog. Oh, I'm walking uh, next to a cage. Dog jumps up because someone didn't lock the cage because they're a bad pet owner. It's just like <laughs> it's and they're fast. They're really fast. And if you don't hit them dead on, they're gonna get you. And then. Everyone else wails on you. Brian, bad pet owner. You said that every monster you fight in this game was a person. That was like a kid or something, dude. No, the dogs <laughs> used to be dogs. That's pretty clear, Tom. There's no arguments there. You're bad at games. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Whatever. It's my list. Shut up. Four. We're on to four. Uh, the, the dudes with rifles. Just annoying. I think we all can agree that they just suck. Uh, they are. They're super slow. Um, and they always are on the back end of a group. So you're always dealing with the encroaching melee people and they're just pot shotting you from the back. And the part that blows so much is their shot essentially will stop you from doing anything that you're doing. It's, it's just infuriating. So there's a portion if you guys have not done it yet. Actually, I think you did. If you fought the witches where there's like those five riflemen as a group and you got to rush them down. Three of them hit you, you're dead. It's just they're just a stupid character. You, you, I mean, any of the 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 projectiles move so slowly in this game, like oddly slowly. All you have to do is roll. You just gotta get good, Brian. That's if you're looking at them, Joe. Sometimes I'm dealing with what's immediately next to me. It's great that you're forty yards back because you're scared to engage. But you know what? Some people are up there beating some <laughs> Joe. Okay. What are we on? Four? Three. Oh, we just did four. Yeah. Numbers. I hate numbers. Three. Uh, three is the Snatchers. I, if you guys have run into those, they're the, the bag men. Uh, they are like Santa's gnarled cousin that was doing meth last weekend in the camper. Um, they're really big. They appear to be super slow, but they're not. They have an exceedingly high amount of range. The parry window on them is really small. And if they connect with you, you're probably going to die. They, they hit like a like a Mack truck. The first time I encountered the Bagman, I thought that I was done with the game. Like, I thought I had reached, like, my skill cap. It's like, oh, well, it looks like I'm done with Bloodborne because I can't take down these guys. Fortunately, there's <laughs> another path to go down. And I, uh, like, I found my way out of the stupid goal. How do you say that word? G-A-O-L. I know it means prison. But God I will or something. I have no idea. It's just jail. You just say it like jail. Really? Yeah, it's like an old English spelling of jail. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank God we have a former English teacher on the show. Thank you, friends. <laughs> so to deal with those, this is where that hunter's axe would help you out, Tom. If you if you charge R2 and then release it, you'll hit it hard enough that it will actually put it into the ground. So whatever animation it is, say it's attacking you, if your axe connects before it gets to you, you'll put it down, and then it'll have to stand back up, and it'll restart all of its animation. So I you can actually kind of just keep resetting him. I think it was this enemy that taught me that I needed to use the sock cleaver forever because I'd roll past him, I'd do the charged attack, and it was fast enough that I could land and then get a visceral on them after that. Uh, and then the game kind of took off for a second phase for me. Uh, so they they definitely are kind of the next bump up in skill difficulty. Two is the parasitic leech. I don't know if you guys have encountered many of these things. These, these, these dumbass things, uh, they can come out of enemies... And they're just like, they look like tube worms, but they jump on you. 
and you cannot you you can't basically interrupt what they're doing. So if more than two hit you, you're just dead. How, so they're just they're Richards. They're just complete Richards. One, I don't understand the Richard reference. Two, how big are these things? Are they like the size of your arm? Are they the size of a finger? Like, are they the size? Uh, of they're like reach? the size of your arm. So, like, they're 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 big enough where you can see them pretty e easy. Uh, by the way, Richard, what's short for Richard, Tom? You're a Richard. Rich, Rich? would be the proper one. Oh, I'm trying to be censored oh. on your show. Yeah, well, I appreciate the effort, but uh, you know, you add that to the lexicon. <laughs> So they're just annoying. They always attack in groups, and because they're attacking in a group, they never allow you to attack back. Very easy to get overwhelmed. Um, honorable mention are the elevators. Why the elevators? Because they're a big effing hole. And because you know why? Because when you get killed, you get super pissed, and you go right back to where the thing had killed you, like we talked about not doing on the Call of Duty podcast, but you run right back at it, and you forgot that you had to activate the elevator, and you fall down the hole, and you've died again, and now your echoes are gone. And then... <laughs> You're really mad because it was an inanimate object that killed you. Brian, how many times do you think the elevators killed you? God, like seven. Yeah. It wasn't a ton of times, but when it did happen, it, I, you know the echoes are gone, and you're already mad because you died and you rushed to do it. That's what killed you. Yeah, I was. It's just a kick in the. D I was probably right around five. Like I died to the elevators a number of times, and it's usually that was when it was time to stop playing for the night. I, I didn't know that anybody else did it. <laughs> I haven't died to an elevator yet, but the ladders have killed me more often than I want to admit. <laughs> like just yeah. not hitting, not hitting X at the right time and just. <laughs> yeah. Height. Height is a deadly thing in this game. Yes, um, number, number one is something called a blood liquor. Now, if you guys have not been to, it's as gross as it sounds. If you've not been to Canehurst, it's kind of like a scraggly witch walking on all fours, like spindly kind of thing, with a gigantic sack of blood hanging from its stomach like a mosquito that's been overfed. They are a disgusting thing, but they're built like a damn alignment, and they move like they're on a cocaine bender. They're really, really fast, and this is an enemy where there is no visceral, there's no visceral interruption. You basically just have to kind of work the environment to get something between like a statue and hit them through it. Otherwise they will beat you to death one-on-one. -on -one. And there's like eight of them outside of the castle. And that is number one with a freaking bullet. <laughs> That's funny. I was all excited to like stop doing this podcast and go, go visit Kanehurst, get this experience before I move off of Bloodborne for the next uh, show related thing. And now I'm not so sure. <laughs> once you get, once you get in the main doors of Kanehurst, that's where all the fun is. Um, Everything on the outside, the outside is completely comprised of those parasitic leeches I talked about and the blood liquors. So get inside fast. Sounds awesome. Well, what did Brian miss? Tweet your thoughts to at TomSidLogicOIO or email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That is overratedpod at gmail.com. So, as you guys know, I've been doing a lot of exotic dancing to pay for my way to get through clown college. Now, I was doing... <laughs> What they call it, they call it the back avix. If you don't know what it is, you can't afford it. But I kind of hurt my low back. Do you guys have any idea where I could go to fix this? Well, the first question that I have for you is like, is it full nude exotic dancing, or are you like out there in a man thong? Typically, I'm wearing a washcloth and a smile. <laughs> it's a good look for you, Brian. It's a good look for you. Yeah. Anyways, you can check out our friends at Premier Help. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, and exotic dance injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. 
Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That is PremierHealthMN.com. From the iconic video game, we move on to the less-known Bloodborne the Card Game. Released in 2016, the Bloodborne Card Game tasks three to five hunters with battling monsters and a big bad boss enemy. Each player starts with a hand of basic weapons. Each turn, players draw an enemy from the deck. Each player selects a card from their hand, either a weapon, a transformation, or the hunter's rest. And then starting with the first player, players draw blood tokens from the monster for each point of damage they do to the enemy, and then they add it to their player mat. Then monsters fight back with different exploding dice that damage all players. So there's three different tiers, uh, most most dangerous, middle dangerous, least dangerous, but even the least dangerous has two faces that will keep adding up damage. So if you keep rolling those exploding sides, all the hunters could die in a hurry. Mm -hmm. If a player dies, they lose all of their accumulated blood, and the blood is essentially your victory points. Players who make it to the hunter's rest bank all of their blood, turning it into victory points. Defeated monsters also drop trophies for the hunters who contributed damage. There are three categories of trophies, and the more you accumulate in each category equals more victory points for you at the end of the game. Then, after fighting the big bad, whoever has the most victory points is the winner. This game was designed by Eric Lang, whose notable titles include Blood Range, Chaos in the Old World, Star Wars the Card Game, and one of my personal favorites. I had no idea these games were connected, but Quarriers! <laughs> I love Quarriers. You both have played this game with me. It's awesome. Uh, but sticking with our theme, Bloodborne the Card Game has a 6.9 rating on Board Game Geek. Let's start the discussion by asking what stood out to you. Brian, you are probably the least hardcore board gamer out of the three of us. Let's start with your opinion. What stood out for you in this game? A mix of competitive and cooperative at the same time. Because you, you definitely needed to lean on your other players to survive. You you can't do a lot of things on your own but at the same time you're also trying to predict what actions are going to do because you can actually do some actions that will capitalize on that the part that i thought was a really cool way to add so much kind of tension to the game because if, if you're you're for ba- you're creating a game based off bloodborne you need to have that like oh my god i could die at any given moment and they did that with the uh going to hunter's dream uh, you play the card, you're not engaging with the enemy, but what happens in that moment is whatever damage the enemy is doing, you take half. So if you're already bleeding all over, you've killed a couple enemies, you've got those blood tokens, and whatever the the opponent or your, your, your the other guy playing with you, they keep rolling the additional dice for more damage, and you're just hoping to God they stop so you can just have the one hit point and cash this stuff in. But yes. We all experienced it during that game. We're like, please stop doing that, Pat. And he just wouldn't stop <laughs> ruining it for everybody. Um, but that's just how Pat works. It is how Pat works. Bernsey, what stood out to you in this game? Yeah, I think so... The ability, because the game's pretty streamlined in that it works in turn order. So if you're last, you sort of have to try to figure out if you're going to be able to actually get a lick in on the monster in order to get any of the benefits, or if any of the benefits will be there by the time it, everybody would collect their blood otherwise, right? Uh, and But the fact that you had a couple of cards that you could play, so you could either play some pistols that allowed you to sort of jump ahead first and get your damage in on the monster right away. Um, or you had, was it, I can't remember what the name of the card was. Was it Perry? 
whichever card that allowed you to actually um once everybody revealed their cards you could change yours you could basically reveal your action then at that point it's a transform card using the basically transform the theme from the game the, from the video game is you can transform your weapons into different modes so that gave you a little bit more flexibility yes yes and so so i thought that was interesting and and a lot of the game is like brian was saying is when do i have to go to the hunter's dream you don't want to go too early because you want to make sure that you're making it worth your while and not like wasting your trip so you want to get out enough of your cards before you go back there but i know like that first game that we played especially like i lost that game because i did not go like a turn sooner and i lost like so many blood echoes that time when i died and it, it just crushed me it crushed me i probably would have been close to first and i was dead last after that uh, in that first game because of that yeah it was a brutal turn for you what stood out to me about this game was that it was really easy to grasp even though none of us had played the game before by the time we had gotten through one or two enemies like we all had a feel for like how it worked and i think by the second time we were able to like formulate cohesive strategies to try to win the game yeah and 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 knowing knowing sort of what weapons were going to be coming then to some extent you started to be able to craft how things were going to work and i think the other thing like we were talking about is since it is cooperative slash competitive you have to know what everybody else is going to be doing so you have an idea of how you either need to protect yourself from that or take advantage of that uh so i believe in the second game and this is maybe getting into like the strategies that we employed um but like that second game I started to just grab the things that would do damage to all of the hunters because I didn't want you to do that to me. And then uh, I pulled that out on you guys a couple of times when you were vulnerable to try to capitalize on that. But it was mostly just because I figured that, you know, Tom was going to blow us all up. So I don't want him to blow us all up. So I'm going to take that stuff. You have to out Tom the Tom. It's the only way to Tom with the Tom. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, the strategy I used wound up being the same for both of the games. There are both ranged and melee weapons, and one of the upgraded ranged weapons that came up in both games was Ludwig's Rifle. And the way that weapon worked is if you're the only one to play it, then you get to take your damage first. So if you're like the last player, you play Ludwig's Rifle and you're guaranteed to get your lick in before all of the other hunters collect all of the blood. And uh, I would just buy those as they came up and nobody else could get their hands on them. So I knew that no one else was going to play it because I had the ball. Uh, what did the beast claw do again, Tom? That one was an extremely useful weapon. Yeah, that was the other part of my strategy. The beast claw was a melee weapon. So if I was late in turn order and didn't think I'd get a turn in, otherwise I'd use Ludwig's rifle. Otherwise I'd use my beast claw, which not only does a melee attack and does some damage and gets you the blood. It also gives you a free trip to the hunter's rest at the end of the turn. So like my blood echoes were never really in, uh, in harm's way after that, because I could just use the beast claw get the heck out of there as long as like they didn't take me from 10 or whatever the starting hit points are down to zero in one turn i was relatively safe and i wound up winning the second game with the strategy because i got those weapons early on and i just it was a very simple strategy but it worked for our game that beast claw was so useful and the second that came up you snatched that up quick enough where nobody even had a hope at grabbing it i won the first game largely based on the fact that I was trying to, I think the group was a little bit hesitant understanding how the hit point system was working. People were going back to the Hunter's Dream maybe a little bit earlier than they should have been. Except for Joey. So I was, 
Except for me, yep. <laughs> Joe went too late. <laughs> and and there's a couple of times that I went back there at about two hit points, but I was able to kind of pick up enough enough blood at that point where I wound up coming out ahead just by a couple. Um, but I wound up that wound up catching me in the ass in the second game because I tried to push a little bit farther, and Joe shot a cannon, I want to say it was, mm-hmm. and that one hit point was just enough to kill me. And I it put me in dead last, so. Yeah, as we would have said back in the fraternity, you got tommed, motherfucker. It's <laughs> like becoming the moniker of stabbing a man in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Pat's Pat's strategy was just to get the Kirk hammer and try to use it. I think was what it was because he had the Kirk hammer anytime it came up, and he yeah he was just doing it does the most damage to the enemies, um, and so yeah he was just smacking them as hard as he could. Yeah. It, an interesting mechanic in this game, once you play a card, it goes into a discard, and you don't get it back until you go to the Hunter's Rest. Uh, and that is incredibly important because, like, you only get to upgrade so many cards. So f- with me having the Beast Claw and getting those free trips back, it was basically every other turn I'd play Ludwig's Rifle and then the Beast Claw. I'd always have my two best weapons at the ready. I don't know how the rest of you suckers made it through. I won. I'm not really sure what I was doing, but I won. So what does that say about you? <laughs> I mean, I won half the games. (laughs) What are our overall impressions and takeaways of this game? Is this something that's going to be in our regular board game rotation, or is it more of a diversion? I can definitely see this being a game to play, uh, even if it's just a shorter, like an hour, maybe hour and a half, because the games go by really quick. We had, if you guys can remind me, how long were were the games taking? 20 minutes? 15 minutes? Well... The day that we played Bloodborne games, we played from like 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. and it felt like the blink of an eye. So it's a little hard to say. <laughs> yeah, I just I'll, it, as always when playing new games, the instructions are the longest portion of the program. Uh, but once we got the rhythm of the games, the rounds were going by fast. It was it was pretty quick. Our first game was the length of our second game, so we really started to figure out how it worked, and it was fun you have that kind of hey i'm gonna help you out this time with the kirk hammer but then i'm gonna try to murder you with this cannon in a minute and (laughs) that dynamic going back and forth made it enjoyable i would definitely play this again bernsey where does it come in for you yeah so i think i think the good thing about it is that it it does a really good job of giving you the feel of the game or at least a little bit enough of the feel of like what Bloodborne is. I think they do a really good job of like the monsters are are interesting enough when you're fighting them and they each have like a unique ability that's fitting to what they are in the video game. Uh, but it, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's really quick. I think it's going to be really easy to train other people. So it's it feels like kind of the type of game that you could whip out at the beginning of like a longer day and say, all right, let's jump in and play something quick, get a couple of games in. All right, now we're ready for the next thing to dive into something bigger and deeper. It's interesting that you bring on the onboarding of new players because we had the complete spectrum when we played this game. Brian had already, I think, been all the way through New Game Plus in Bloodborne, the video game. Pat had never experienced Bloodborne in, in any form or medium. And so, it was, like, Brian was really into the lore in the cards. He's like, oh, the cannon. Yeah, really cool. And Pat's like, oh, here's a thing that does four damage. <laughs> yes. I think for me, I would file it away as palate cleanser material. I enjoyed it. It's fun. Thematically, it's cool. But, like, for me, it's just kind of a fun diversion if we're going to set aside time for board games honestly i'd rather play quarriers than bloodborne the card game again 
but I also think Quarries is a phenomenal game. I mean, it's it's fun, it's good, I liked it, and I could see, I could definitely see us playing it again. It's just, it's never going to be near the top of the list for me. Interesting, interesting. Any other closing thoughts before we move on? Well, if you want to give me your copy, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't need more board games. I don't need more board games. Yeah, well, we'll see what you walk away from the patron appreciation party with. <laughs> We're going to take a brief little break from Bloodborne. For our next segment, we're going to welcome Casey into the show to talk about Torchlight on Game Pass Forever. And now we welcome in good friend of the show, Casey Aline for Game Pass Forever. Casey, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me again, guys. For April's Game Pass Forever game, our benevolent overlords on Patreon chose Torchlight 3 by Ektra Games. It was the studio's first game, and this studio was founded by one of the original creators of Torchlight. In this action RPG, players choose either a single or multiplayer game, and then you choose from one of four characters. Casey, you nominated this game for Game Pass Forever. What drew you to it? Well, I played the original Torchlight when it first came out on PC. Uh, if I remember right, I played it with our mutual friend, the Rogue Hippo, and you, Tom. And I guess I kind of ruined our co-op game by leveling up past you guys, getting a bunch of good stuff, uh, which made it a little bit too easy for you guys, I think. And uh, my, my intentions were good, but have you said in the past uh, podcasts, I kind of have a way of breaking games. Uh, he, <laughs> yeah. he went full on Eric Rivard on it, huh? <laughs> yeah, very similar, except uh, Casey just... He did it with so much style. You did this with Terraria too, my friend. Like you went over the deep end of that game. Like we played together one night and it was fun. And then like the next time I logged in, you're like, well, use all the best gear in the game. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it was, actually, it was actually Torchlight 2 that you had played. The original Torchlight did not have multiplayer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. my bad. So it was Torchlight 2. Uh, it was you, me, Rogue Hippo, and Doohow. That was the last game that he logged into Steam for. I think it is the last game that he played <laughs> on the internet. God, I wrecked Duhal. Shoot. <laughs> my, bad, my bad. You did. You turned him into the caveman gamer. <laughs> now, Joey, Joey, you're a big Diablo fan. Have you played any of the Torchlight games previously? So I played, well, it must have been Torchlight 2 then, because I, I, I picked up one of the games in order to play online with you, um, but I couldn't find it for a while because for some reason when I heard you say it, I kept hearing Porchlight with a P. And so I couldn't find the game at all. And I, it seemed like a weird name. I didn't know what it really stood for. But um, so I played that for like a week. And then I think either I fell off of it, you guys fell off of it. Who knows what happened with it? So, but I have played, I dabbled a lot with Diablo clones in the past, though. We fell off it because Casey ruined it for us. Well, there's that too, probably then. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, so, but I have dabbled with other Diablo clones uh, recently, like Warhammer Chaos Bane, which came out last year or two years ago, maybe. I think it was two years ago, even now, which which was fine. It's not great. And then uh, Magic Legends, the beta that's out right now, uh, which is very similar uh, to all of these games also. So uh, I, I have experience with the genre, not as much with the series itself. Sure. I played the original Torchlight. Uh, I played it pretty extensively, actually. Uh, I think it held up well against Diablo in its time. It was very much a derivative type experience, but they did it really, really well. And I would say this about the original Torchlight. It is more fun to go back to Torchlight 1 than it is to go back to Diablo 2. And I said, no, that sounds like sacrilege. Like D2 is one of my five all-time favorite games, but I've loaded it up recently. It looks 
freaking rough. Like it's it's no longer a pretty game. So do you think that might change with uh, the whatever they're calling it? It's some fancy name for Diablo 2 Resurrected, I think it is. Do you think that's going to change with that? Almost certainly, because like the character models, everything just like it's funny how much we gloss over it in our minds because, uh, you know, we're used to things looking good and video games have always pushed technology for visuals. But like you go back to D2 now, it's like, oh, my God, I played a thousand hours of this crappy looking game. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was really cool because like you change your armor and like it kind of changed the appearance of the character but like now you fully expect your character to look like what their gear looks like like it's a it's a trip going back to Diablo 2 but forget that game we're not here to talk about that <laughs> we're here to talk about Torchlight 3 we'll start with the classes there are four classes included in the base game uh, I think there is a fifth that's available maybe if you purchase the game I went on their website and there's a cursed captain captain that's available uh, really? We are playing this on Game Pass. It's not an option in Game Pass. I couldn't find anywhere where we could buy it, so I don't really know if that actually got released or if like the company went under and they haven't updated the website or what the deal is. If you or, or maybe it's PC only, since the game originally I think came out on PC before consoles. I don't know. Yeah, if it is PC only, it's not on Game Pass for PC. So, huh? Yeah. So just a weird thing. There might be more characters if you buy a full retail release of this. But of the four characters we had access to, there was a sharpshooter, a ranged character that revolves around summoning abilities that bring in pets or huge singular attacks. There is the forge, that's a rolling robot dude with a gun for a chest. There is the dusk mage, a magic user that needs to balance light and dark magic. And a railmaster. This dude, not only does he fight with a big hammer, which is just cool, but he has a little train car that follows him. A train car! Why don't any of us choose the train dude? I mean, I messed around with it. I couldn't figure out what the train actually did that helped me. <laughs> it shoots. You lay down a little track, and then it'll be at the end of its track shooting the bad guys. Train dude was awesome. But let's talk. Uh, let's dive into the characters that we chose. Which of these characters did each of you lean to, and what were your impressions of them? So, yeah. So, for multiplayer, I chose the sharpshooter. And the main reason I chose the sharpshooter was because whenever I play, like, a Diablo-style game, I always gravitate towards just the the brute that's up front just pounding things with probably two weapons and so i figured it would make sense to try something different for a change and so i went with the sharpshooter i enjoyed the class more than i actually anticipated uh mostly due to the summoning pets Uh, i think they're really interesting our question on the summoning was that actually a sharpshooter thing or was that your shared skill tree thing that was so like the shared skill tree gave me other ones that I could, but all of the ones that I used were uh, specific to the sharpshooter class. Uh, so you had the, these little goblin dudes that you would spawn. And then if you found certain pieces of gear, you could get extra ones of those basically. Uh, and then there was like an, an eagle, which Tom kept calling the Phoenix that like screed down from the roof and slammed on the enemies. All right, eagles are not flaming birds. They are not on fire. That was a phoenix, dude. If a phoenix's rise, though, eagles descend to kill. I mean, so that's what it is. Uh, and, and there's a couple of other ones that I wasn't exactly sure what they did. But so it's a those phoenix are the two eagle, main ones. A phenol, a feagle. Eagle? <laughs> Maybe it arose fiegel. out of the sun. Yeah. Casey's Set on my side on, on this fire. one. So, and then, and so then, yeah, so it's te- <laughs> so because of the way the sun is oriented and the earth is rotating, it, it rose out of the sun, but it was the bottom of the earth. So 
it, I guess it makes sense. You're right, Tom. You're always right. I agree, and I would also go on record as saying the phoenix is the best mythological creature. And I'm not just biased because my wife is named Phoenix and she's the best. Maybe I am. <laughs> it's justified, though. It's justified. Now that I've completely derailed you, did you have any other thoughts on the sharpshooter, or should we pass it off to Casey to talk about his character? Uh, the sharpshooter was, like, the shooting abilities were fun, too. I, I do like that Okay, one thing I do like is that you could equip not just like a bow and arrow, which you start with. You can also equip guns and things like that. The one thing that I thought was weird, though, is some of the special shooting abilities. Um, even though you have like a musket attached, once you do those, it's arrows that shoot out. I thought it would have been really cool. It's a little bit more work, but I thought it would have been really cool if it would have been bullets that shoot out because that's your weapon. Instead of just always being arrows except for your main attack. What a weird, weird, like immersion shattering thing. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, one other thing on the sharpshooter, you had like an ammo capacity. I thought that was kind of an interesting mechanic. Do you want to explain how that worked real quick? Yeah, so your special ability, so your main ability you can spam as much as you want. I mean, because otherwise you, you can't play the game because you have to be attacking. It's, it's always be attacking, ABA, always be attacking. But with your other abilities uh, that are the shooting-based abilities, they use up different amounts of ammo. So one of them uses two ammo, another one uses three ammo. Uh, and so you have to kind of balance that, that you gain that back as you attack with other attacks, uh, you earn that ammo back. And eventually once I think it was level 10, you unlock the reload ability, which is on a cooldown that allows you to pull all of your ammo back. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like timing that out to use that at the right time. Once you've burned through your ammo to like get another go of it. Uh, and, and it's all sort of this fine kind of. Uh, balance of when do I reload and how much ammo should I be using? What other attacks should I be using to intersperse with that? Uh, so it is neat how that kind how that worked. I think it's really interesting that it was more than just a cooldown system. Like there's a little risk reward for using your different abilities other than just eight seconds until I get it again. I think uh, hats off to Ektra for that interesting mechanic. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it made it interesting to play. Casey, you settled on the forge. Tell us a bit about this character. I've always been, like Joey said, uh, he's been drawn to the tanky characters. I guess I just decided to stick with what I know best and, and went with the tank. Um, and I, I love playing the character. Uh, when when paired with the Blood Drinker Relic, which we'll get into some of the relics later, but when paired with that Blood Drinker Relic, he was almost unstoppable. Um, in, our, in our multiplayer, I didn't even use the two other skill trees that he had, uh, the 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 trees are the barrage tree and the brawl tree barrage is uh, his ranged attack. So the, the forged has a, a chest gun, which you can just hold down shoot. And unlike the sharpshooter, you don't, you have unlimited ammo. You can just hold that bad boy down and mow down everything on the entire field, which is super cool, but it actually kind of goes against everything that the character does. He's more of a get in there, use the sword slice and, and dash and smash things. And uh, I think if you're using that chest gun, basically all it did for me was refill my, my relic bar that, that you have to use to use your, your relic power. Um, and then it had a brawl tree as well, uh, which is, is the more uh, melee tree, which, which made sense. But again, I didn't even have to use it because for me, when I was using this blood drinker relic, it just was all I needed. And it's funny because uh, I played it when I played through a bit of it as uh, single player. 
I basically did the complete opposite. I was just boom, 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 boom. I was a, a movable turret to some extent. Like when you shoot, you can't move. But I just sat there and spammed that shooting and just shot everything. And then if stuff got close, then I went to the super punch attack where it's like these big fists that fly out and hit the things. And it was basically just spamming those two buttons back and forth between the two uh, in the earlier levels anyway. I'm sure you have to do more of a balance as the game goes on. Uh, but I thought that the character was was definitely fun to play. I, I would agree with you on that, Casey. And it sounds yeah, like, I, it, sounds, it sounds like there are a couple of legitimate different builds for it, which is interesting. I'll talk about my character in a little bit, but it seemed like uh, there's really only kind of one way to build my character. You need a lot of balance between the two different skill trees. It's super interesting to me that you can go different ways with the forged. Yeah, he's got a lot of different things you can do, and I just I was drawn to that that blood drinking tree which it just seemed like a natural fit and i, I kind of wish i would have experienced experimented more with some of the other things because like in the end i think that that combination of the blood drinking and the and the forged is, is almost was overpowered because i could just run right into like these huge group of mobs and just spam the buttons like joey said and you fill up your relic bar and then when you use that it shoots out these little blood drinking orbs that not only like deal just crazy damage, but it also heals you at the same time. And it was just kind of rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And it was like, I, <laughs> I couldn't die. I never had to use potions. I never had, it was, it was pretty wild. Like <laughs> what a, what a crazy combination that was in the end. You brought up the fact that you felt overpowered multiple times during our playthrough. And I wanted to kind of pick at that a little bit because from my perception, like I thought we were all pretty equal and I didn't feel particularly overpowered in this game. So I thought, I think this game, especially early on, askews maybe a little on the easy side because none of us were really at risk until maybe our third, fourth session playing together when we were a bit further into the game. So I just, I thought it was really interesting that you had this perception of being overpowered when like for me, if you had been overpowered, like it would have been super annoying for me because A, you'd be killing everything and B, I wouldn't like have any, you know, clever remarks to say while we're playing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I don't think like as far as like damage output, I wasn't, but just the fact, like, I don't know how many potions you guys used, but like when I was playing through solo first and I, and I had, I had the wrong combinations of, of gear and things. So like, and I, I want to talk about that later, but maybe this is a good time to talk about it where my first playthrough with the character, I used more of a ranged weapon, which didn't match with the, the blood drinker tree. But if you use the sword and then you, upgrade certain parts of the tree like he almost becomes impossible to kill so uh, again like i don't think the the overpowered part is in like his damage output i think the damage output is pretty comparable to you guys and probably actually even less it's just the fact that he can't die <laughs> yeah he was just he was just a, a phenomenal tank at that point right like an unstoppable tank yeah literally almost because you know you put him on a mine cart and he rolls around almost like a tank <laughs> That's super yep. interesting. That uh, that takes like the traditional torchlight experience and infuses a more uh, current action RPG aesthetic into it. Because Diablo three, it is also hard to die. Like they auto drink potions for you in Diablo three, and you find health orbs scattered around the world. Traditionally, with an action RPG like this, potion management was a very crucial part of the game. You had to drink health potions. You had to drink mana potions if you were using any kind of skills or magic. And for the most part, that is no longer a thing in Torchlight three. Yeah, there's a little bit of a cooldown on your health potion, but otherwise it 
they, they, you find so many of them. I don't, I don't think I was ever at a want for not having enough of them. There were a couple of times where it got really close to the end of the cooldown to heal myself. Uh, one of the other things I found interesting with the forge when I was playing on my uh, single player, and I don't know if this was something that uh, was just a gear item that I found or if it was something that I unlocked. Uh, but the thing that I found was interesting was as the forged when I used when I used a po a potion, it would shoot all of the enemies away from me. Um, is that something that you had too? I don't know if that was just gear that I had equipped that did that, or did you have an ability like that too, Casey? Or did you never need it because you never had to use a healing potion? I don't remember having that ability. Um, even the first time I played through, and the first time I played through, I, I had to use a lot of potions, and I actually had to revive a lot because, again, I just had the wrong kind of mix. But um, So it must, have been, yeah. it must have been an item that I had, but that saved me in one of the uh, like level 5 dungeons because you just get sometimes swarmed by these like unreal enemies, uh, and, and you can't move. And so use a heal potion, boom, it finally creates an opening. You can try to get out of the way. Uh, so I thought that was that was also interesting, uh, having that ability in there, uh, even though I'm not 100% sure where I got it from. I ran low on health potions a couple of times, but it corresponded with me getting bored and for forging off on my own. <laughs> no. <laughs> that never happens, Tom. How, how did that happen? That didn't used to be a problem for me in action RPGs. Maybe it's because I've played a lot of them as solo experiences and like the multiplayer I've played has been largely limited, but Torchlight 3 didn't always hold my interest. And so like if the guys we were fighting weren't particularly interesting, like I'd go full Halo with Casey and just like try to barge my way to the next dungeon to try to move things along. Or or Black Ops Cold War zombies or <laughs> we're seeing a trend tom i'm just saying a trend is is surfacing in these podcasts i think in black ops cold war zombies i think that was some of my best team playery well no because it was only team playery because i knew you were doing it and would sprint after you otherwise cesar and brian were off on their own and brian's like i don't know how this game works <laughs> yeah okay you've got a specific example there i was thinking of d machine <laughs> Uh, gotcha. Yeah, that that was a little bit different. Yeah, I, w I will agree with you on that, Tom. Yeah, I was full Tom mode when we were playing with Brian because he didn't know what the f*** was going on and I didn't have time to teach him. <laughs> Coming back to Torchlight 3 again, my character was the Dusk Mage, which I thought was super interesting. I tend to be a lot of magic users and mages in different types of games. And what's unique about the Dusk Mage is there are two different skill trees. One is light magic, one is dark magic, and those skills play off of each other. So to reach an optimal state, you need to cast an equal amount of light and dark magic. And if you flip, as you're casting light and dark magic, little bars fill up on either side of your mana gauge. And if both of those bars get filled, you enter like an enlightened state or a balanced state or some sort of altered state. And then all of your spells are much more powerful. So it's a balancing act of trying to use both of those magic. I didn't get like a light magic or a dark magic skill that I used until like our third play session. So like 90-ish hours into the game. So I spent most of my time in this game apparently playing less than effectively. Which, I mean, it didn't, I didn't notice that it wasn't effective. Um, Cause I think you were still definitely putting out a lot of damage and killing things. Did you spec mostly your relic or? Yeah, I started out completely on the relic and then, uh, 
Like, you start with one light magic ability, and I started completely on the relic for my first five, six levels, and then I think I got a dark magic ability, and then I got a better light magic ability, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, this altered state is pretty cool, pretty good. Well, and that, I think, the, the other thing that I noticed when I messed around with the Dusk Mage was, and I can't remember which one it was, unfortunately, but one of the two spells that you start with, it's either the light spell or the dark spell, feels much more effective um, and seems like it does more damage than the other one. And so it almost felt like you didn't want to use the other one, but you had to use it in order to get the gauge to match. Um, and so I think that was maybe not necessarily a frustration point, but that made it a little bit more difficult when playing that to feel like you, you feel like, like you were saying earlier, you're tied into having to play a certain way. Yeah. I mean, which isn't necessarily that fun with a game like this. Agreed. Uh, any other thoughts on the characters before we move on to skill trees? Um, did you want to give a little bit more information on the Railmaster, what little bit you messed around with it, um, and some of the other things that he has, since we went so much into the other three? Yeah, I only played like uh, an hour or so with him, but his little train cart was super duper fun and one of the most interesting things I'd seen in an action RPG. So like, basically you could, I was playing with a PC on him and I'd click where I wanted to go and then it would stop there and it would just shoot all the enemies around. Then one of his early abilities, he gets dynamite to chuck. So I was parking my train car and throwing dynamite and just having a blast with it, literally. 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 He also has a big hammer. I, I, I do love characters with big hammers. Like the Warhammer is my favorite weapon of all weapons. And so it was fun to just sort of do big smash attacks uh, with the hammer. Uh, but I, I never figured out. And granted, I only played like a couple hours uh, up to like level four with him i never really figured out exactly what like the button to make the train come to you actually really did um but it, it does look really cool as it lays down tracks and follows you throughout the world uh that is very unique i haven't really seen that in a game before and you played on console so it might have been a different experience trying to manage that train like i was able to click exactly where i wanted it to go gotcha yeah i know how to really direct it it just seemed like it came to me uh, whenever I hit the button for it to to do the thing. Yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty neat class, and I deeply regretted my commitment to the Dusk Mage class because here's <laughs> the thing with this game. If you choose single player or multiplayer, you can never change where that character lives. Like, you cannot use your multiplayer character in single player, and you cannot go the other way either with single player characters, and that, frankly, sucks. I have no idea why they made that choice. It's 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 weird, and, and like you said, annoying because then you have to live in, like, two worlds, basically. Diablo um, 2 came out, like, 25 years ago. You could use your characters in both single and multiplayer on that. 25 years ago. Well, and I and I don't see how it would break things to pull it between the two, because it doesn't seem like you could... It doesn't seem like there's any way to really mess with the game in single player to the point where you'd be OP in multiplayer, because things should scale up to your ability level and your skill level... Uh, so, yeah, I'm not really sure why that is. Um, if part of it's just because the game started being designed as an MMO and then they decided, oh, we need to pull this back. We're not going to do it this way. And so then they tried to make it more traditional. And for some reason, infrastructurally, maybe they just couldn't make those two worlds exist together. I don't know. It's it's strange. It is strange. Yeah. What, yeah. It was a bummer. What a weird choice. We've talked about our skills quite a bit. 
Uh, let's do kind of a deeper dive into the skill trees. Each character that you can choose from has two unique skill trees, and then the third skill tree you get is actually a relic. It's a, it's a pool of five different relics that are shared between all the characters. With each of these skill trees, each skill has different tiers. So once you get three points in a skill, it generally gets a more powerful permanent effect. Which unique skill trees did you guys choose for your main character, and what did you think of the skill progression in this game? Well, we talked a little bit about my tree already. I chose the the Blood Drinker tree, uh, which was a perfect companion to the to the Forged. Uh, basically, what it does is when you hit an enemy, it causes a bleed effect on them, and then it in turn heals you. I thought the skill progression was pretty good. Uh, the amount of options to upgrade at first was kind of overwhelming. Like, took a long time for me to get used to. Like I said, the first time I played through, I did a lot wrong, and after uh, I used a similar I used the same character for our, our multiplayer game. And the reason I did that is because I wanted to see how it really affected things. Like you, you can go respect your skills, but it's kind of wonky in this game and you have to get these little items and then go back to your base and respect everything, which I think is kind of, kind of stupid, but yeah, and, and the, the difficulty and, and time between level ups and everything though, for me seemed, seemed about right. Yeah. You, um, have you played many games with like an in-depth te tech tree like this before, Casey? Um, other than Torchlight Two, and maybe I'm trying to think if I've played any mobile games of something similar. But off the top of my head, Tapestry. No, well, uh, has a tech tree. <laughs> Famously, Orion Will of the Wisps has has um, not quite as in-depth of a tree, but it has a pretty pretty big tree. Uh, that you can kind of choose which which way you want your character to go a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting for me to hear your perspective because, like, I've been living in tech trees like since I was a teenager, so I thought it was a cool system, and it's fun to hear your perspective with uh, maybe not as much familiarity with them. I think a part of it too is I overanalyze a lot, and maybe no. I don't know, like, like I, it bothers me if I'm wasting skill points in certain things, and I try to just, you know, like, you know me, I like to break stuff. So if I can, if I can make my character as powerful as possible, that's what I want to do. And if I if I do it wrong, it pisses me off. <laughs> you got such a big brain, dude. I love how you apply it. They don't call him Doctor Power Fantasy for nothing. <laughs> We're gonna get you a shirt that says Min Max. <laughs> Not for the MinMax podcast, <laughs> f*** those guys, but... <laughs> Bernsey, you played a lot of stuff with a lot of tech trees. What were your impressions of the Torchlight 3 skill trees? So this is the first... Well, it's not the first time that I've played a game like this on console. I can't say that because I played Diablo 3 on console. Uh, so it's interesting. So when I played the sharpshooter... Go ahead. I'll make a quick interjection there. It's hard to compare the skill tree in Diablo 3 because, like, the skills felt like they barely mattered to me in Diablo 3. Like, it changed the effects on the screen, but it's like, oh, well, I leveled up and now I get this skill, better equip that. And it didn't feel yeah. like there was much agency in how you're building in Diablo 3. So I hate using that one as a comparison for this game. Yeah, I, I guess the, the direction I was going with that, and I think that maybe is part of it too, is so with the, when I made the sharpshooter, I made the, I, I wouldn't say it was a mistake, uh, because I ended up having a lot of tools at my at my use, 
But I just, as things opened up, I would spec one point into things. So I had a lot of tools available to the point where my entire bar at the bottom was full. I had to hit the, I think it's the left trigger to pull up the other bar so that you can use the face buttons to select. Like I had every single slot on my bar filled with skills. You play a lot of Final Fantasy XIV on console. That's a pretty similar experience, right? Do you think you would have been able to manage all of those skills without that like prior extensive experience with FF14? Um, it, it probably would have been a little more difficult, I would say. Uh, you have more, you have more space in Final Fantasy XIV than you do in this one for skills, and so I think. Because that became that became difficult. It was basically if something lived on my other bar, I didn't use it as much. Is kind of how it ended up being. Uh, they they did a good job of showing it on the screen, so you always saw it was there, and if it was on cooldown or not. Guess but, where my stupid frost column lived. On the other on the other oh, bar, yeah. so you he, just didn't he go was to the it. first one relegated <laughs> to the second bar. Yeah. So so I think. That wasn't necessarily as optimal of a way to play. And I sort of, once I started getting the respect, I went back and, okay, I never use this ability. Take it back. I didn't find it very useful. Take it back. So it was like the first time you get is like this this rat ball that rolls towards something. I never found it very effective. I despect that, put more of that into my other thing. So I started to optimize that a little bit. But when you have more skills unlocked, um, I still just sort of gravitated towards the two or three that I used a lot um, on that character. Uh, when I started playing through as the other characters in single player, I started just focusing on a couple of abilities that I wanted to focus on with them, uh, which means I didn't really experience a whole lot more yet of the other characters, but those abilities were super powerful. So as the Forge, I'm just... I'm just using my, my, my rail gun and using uh, the super punch and that was the only two abilities. I basically just moved between X and Y on my controller. And that was all I really did. I rarely ever used my A button attack, which is your standard attack. You guys both mentioned respecking. I never respect once in this game. Like I, I didn't think I was going to really be super intensely mentally invested in it. Was the respecking aspect fun for you guys? Or was it a pain in the ass to like have to go back and tinker with your character? Casey, we'll start with you on this one. I think it's totally different from Torchlight 2. I think Torchlight 2, you could respec at any time, which for me would have been a lot better. Um, I didn't mind the fact that you had to get the little orb things to do it. It is kind of dumb that they make you go all the way back to your base, though, to respec your your skill. And a quick clarification there. You need an item to respec in this game. There are respectacles, and basically you spend this item and you're able to reassign your skill points. Yeah, which... I think they aren't. You don't get them very often. Um, I think I only got it two, maybe three times uh, in. I don't even know yeah. how many hours put into it, but because we got to level what 13, 14? did we make it to fifteen? We got close, right? Um, we made it to fifteen. Yeah, and so I think yeah, I maybe got three or four in that entire time, uh, and so. Especially like being the first time through the game, I would have liked to have had a little bit more as I felt these are the things I really want to focus on. And I was able to do a little bit of that, but it would have been nice to be able to, okay, now I know how this works. I want to, and I guess maybe at that point, their whole thing is, well, just create a new character and 
tool it that way. I mean, maybe that's what they would want you to do, but that kind of stinks too, you know? I mean, I've invested, you know, quite a few hours into this one character. I, it would be nice to just let me make that work. And I'll say this about the game. Like, I enjoyed playing it with you guys, but it is not a good enough game that you just want to start a new character and go through that whole experience all over again. It's like, I had fun building up my character, but I am not going back to play another Dusk Mage from the beginning. I, I think the gameplay is fun. The story is, like, I still have no idea what my purpose is, what... I'm actually trying to do, why do I care about what I'm doing? It's really just go to this map, find this dungeon, go through this dungeon, go back to town, go back to where that dungeon was, find the next dungeon, do that. Dun I mean, it. Like, I wasn't getting a picture of what the purpose was of anything I'm doing, which Diablo is great at. I mean, Diablo is so fantastic about creating an atmosphere and an environment and, and, and you get to learn about the enemies that you're attacking this. It's just like, yeah, go take down this, uh, this, this really big hulking thing. Okay. Go take down this other really big hulking thing. Uh, randomly you'll be running around and you'll bump into another boss. Uh, good thing you took care of that. It's not a quest, but you, you did it. Good job. It's, it's like, there wasn't anything interesting enough to, to play to really like, hook me in to keep going through that. And maybe there's more stuff in the end game. I don't know, but I think that is definitely a shortfall of this game is the, the, there's no real like narrative hooks to pull you through it. And it, even just a little bit more could have gone a long way. You know, whose take I'd be interested in having on this game. Brian's because Brian is much more of a gameplay over narrative. We both you and I lean heavily towards narrative experiences yeah. Casey, I think you're kind of in a similar boat with us. Brian could care less about story, and as long as like he's having fun with the core gameplay, like he could really sink his teeth into a game. Yeah, I I, I agree with both of what you guys are saying, and you do get some narrative with the cutscenes, and then like everything in this game is very quest driven. Like he said, you go to a dungeon, you complete your quest, you go back to town, you talk to there's three or four NPCs in town that you have to talk to to get your next quest. They give you a little bit another little chunk of lore and then you go on and do the same thing rinse and repeat but yeah it is it is not very narrative driven it's just a kind of a hack and slash your way through everything it's essentially a worse version of vanilla wow <laughs> uh, including including bugs like there were quite a few bugs for a game that's been out for a year plus there were a lot of bugs still in this game yeah uh, well the cut the cut scenes themselves were so we're, we're getting supposed to be getting our story. It had that weird like sound echo or whatever it was the whole time, like, and all like of the experience it wasn't just yeah. It was like they recorded it in a bathtub uh, with yeah. like a talk boy from 1990. <laughs> it was weird. It, it was very weird. Uh, we'll get back to our overall impressions of the game in just a little bit. First, let's talk about gear. Any good action RPG will be a loot fest. How was the gear in this game, Burns? We'll start with you on this one. So. The gear, I think, was interesting in the effects and how uh, certain effects would amplify different abilities. Uh, and, and this might be other action RPGs probably do this. This is the first time I really noticed the effect a lot. Uh, it, like, like for instance, the example I gave before uh, is I found gear that gave me like 
plus two goblins in my goblin swarm when I summoned them, which was fun because then you just got all these, <laughs> you know, these guys that are just like laughing and making these weird noises running around, which was a lot of fun. Or it made whenever the eagle came down or the phoenix, sorry, the phoenix, when the phoenix came down, which I think its name is Greg. The game gives it, gives it the name of Greg. Uh, so anyway, uh, when that comes down, then one of your other abilities gains like lightning damage. Uh, which I thought was interesting. And so the gear from that perspective added a lot to the game. It was still random as to whether you found that stuff, but once you found it, it actually did feel impactful. The problem with it is it really was just trying to get to the legendary gear, and then you just like keep that on forever until you find a updated stat version of that same legendary gear. And like the problem with that was that you looked the same as everybody. There was one example when I was in Travail Point and I had like most of the Muscatoon legendary gear and there was like four other uh, sharpshooters that looked exactly like me, like exactly like me. And that's like, oh, come on, let me make, let me look interesting, unique. Uh, you guys are going to cover most of our thoughts on gears, but I will say this, there is a stat in this game, gear luck. Gear luck is no joke. Because you mentioned how important legendaries are. Casey had gear that had uh, gave him like a 30% gear luck stat. And that, mine was down in like the single digits. And like Casey's like, oh, legendary. Oh, I got another legendary. Hey, Tom, are you getting any legendaries? F*** you, Casey. No, I didn't get any legendaries. <laughs> well, and, and the best part of that too is not only was the conversation going on, every time somebody in the party gets a legendary, it pops up on the screen to show, oh, you know, Casey got another legendary. Casey got another legendary. It's just like, oh, yeah, I'll just keep hacking here, and hopefully I get one. <laughs> so if you play Torchlight 3, the key thing I want you to take away from this conversation is build <laughs> your gear luck stat. Trust me, it will be tremendously helpful for you. Casey, what were your thoughts on the gear? I think there was almost too much gear. Uh, it's just like every single mob that you killed, you got, I don't know, three, four drops every single time, and then... It was just a constant battle of moving gear from your inventory to your pet's inventory, which makes room in your your character's inventory again. Once that was full, then you'd have to either send your pet to town or port back to your base, which just kind of broke up the gameplay uh, quite a bit. And I remember that kind of from Torchlight 2, too. Uh, but in that one, they only had the, the pet thing where you could send the pet back to town. One thing that I thought was pretty cool was the uh, in the in your fort and one of the trees that you could have there was a a, a gear sacrifice tree which actually there's multiple different trees and plants but one of them specifically increases your your, your luck um, if I remember right that's what mm -hmm. it, that's what it yep. did but yeah so, so it increased your luck which Tom talked about how important that is so you can max that out I think it's like level four or five which takes a whole lot of gear but thankfully they give that to you but once you have those, that tree that tree full then you're just stuck to sending your pet basically back to town for gold and i found gold pretty useless especially in our multiplayer campaign where i never had to use it you can use it in town to to buy gear which I don't know why you'd ever have to buy it when it drops so often and then the other thing that you use gear for is resurrecting yourself and in multiplayer, you don't have to do that because your teammates can res you. In single player, you know, it, it didn't happen enough where I felt that I was ever short of gold. 
So it's so uh, it's so cute to me that your frame of reference for action RPGs is Torchlight because that pet mechanic is such a great mechanic. If you haven't played the Torchlight games, but if you're familiar with something like Diablo, you have a pet that is always with you in Torchlight, and you can they have an inventory, you can fill it up, and you can send them to town to sell your stuff. In like a traditional Diablo experience, like you have to warp back to town constantly. Like you have to decide whether it's worth it to carry common level gear if you just leave it lying on the ground. Uh, just interesting to me that you have that frame of reference and that it's still kind of a pain in the ass for you, even with the pet. <laughs> I, the, other, the other thing the pets do, uh, well, first off, you get like a new pet every dungeon, basically, uh, which is awesome until for some reason you keep getting the same pet, just a different color over and over again, which seemed to happen to me. I got like the same like two dogs all the time and this stupid Siamese cat, which is ugly. I don't want that thing get it out of here <laughs> i think each pet had a different skill i think the skills yes. were random based on the pet so even though even if you had five dogs that looked alike they might each have a different skill and he, like all of those are compiled to help the party as well but like i didn't right. honestly i didn't care at all about the pet skill i wanted the coolest looking pet i had and like i think casey got the dragon first i'm like oh man i gotta get a dragon and you mentioned that you get a lot of pets you do i ran out of phallic references for my pets and eventually like i stopped renaming them <laughs> <laughs> that and that's saying something for tom to run out of phallic references that that like that's this is a hallmark uh moment in this in this podcast series and this in this website congratulations torchlight three you broke me you <laughs> casey you also wanted to talk a little bit about the uh unique gear sets what were your thoughts on those uh well we talked about how important the legendary sets are and that each set of gear has a, has a name to it. Uh, and if you get, can't remember if it was three or four pieces of that set, you actually get additional bonuses to your character, which I think was uh, a pretty cool thing in this game. Uh, I know a lot of other games that I play do something similar too, but um, you know, in the early stages of the game, it's not really that big of a deal, but as the, as the game progresses and bosses get harder, little things like that uh, really kind of come in handy against, against those guys. Um, yeah, just just something additional that um, I thought was was pretty neat. Did you guys find many pieces of the same set of gear? Like with my poor gear luck, like I'd never found more than one of a set, which was unfortunate because I found one that fit my playstyle perfectly. It made me look really stupid. I had a giant circle hanging around my neck, but it was super helpful, and I would have loved to find more gear from that set. Yeah, I found... Found all the whole set for the sharpshooter gear, and then since I had or when I had that equipped, as you basically the only time I would swap it out is if I got another version of the same thing that was a new iteration. As long as it didn't change like an active ability that I was like really needing to use, I would swap it out because then I'd have more defense, you know. Yeah, I found two actually two sets, so I had half of one set and half of another set. So like, I think there's nine pieces of gear total each character can have. And I had basically my, my weapon, my shield, my head and, and chest was from one name set. And then everything else was kind of from another one. So I was getting bonuses from two different pieces of sets at, at the same time. So coming back to my key takeaway from this discussion, if you start playing Torchlight 3, you should really focus on gear luck early so that you can uh, just you have a better chance of finding these legendary pieces because I feel like I really missed out by having crappy gear luck and hence crappy equipment. 
We've talked a long time yep. already, but I wanted to talk about base building a little bit. In this game, you have a base that is shared across all your characters. It's still limited. Your single-player base is only for your single-player characters. Your multiplayer base is only for your multiplayer characters. I pose this question. Casey, is base building fun? <laughs> for me, it was. I had uh, a pretty great-looking pad going. It, it really brought me back to the days of Ultima Online, decorating the multiple houses that we shared in the game. Uh, one thing about this one, though, unlike Ultima Online, where you're just running around in an open world and you can see everybody's houses, is nobody really sees your base except you or your friends. So that kind of sucks. Uh, you can randomly stumble across other people's bases, but it doesn't happen very often. And in this case, you don't have to make your base look nice, but you know you do have to have certain things in your base. Like we talked about the one item that lets you respect your skills. There's also different uh, the trees and plants that you can sacrifice items to that give your character bonuses depending on what type of plant that it is. Dude, you need to play Animal Crossing. You, <laughs> nope. you would go nuts nope. for Animal Crossing. You would go out the deep end. Yep, I probably would, which is probably part of the reason I don't play it is because I, I would immerse myself too much. Yep, though you will grow a hatred for raccoons because of Tom Nook and how he would keep just hampering what you want to do with every step of the way by making you just pay him more money, more bells. He needs more bells. Always, Tom Nook's going to put you in debt, dude. Always. See, that's the, that's the thing that, that kind of never drew me into that game is like, I have enough student loan <laughs> debt, my mortgage. I have like, you know, I have all this in real life. I don't need Tom nook to tell me that i need to pay him back in fish or whatever the hell he wants you know i don't want to take out a loan from tom nook i don't need that in my life let me decorate my house and not pay anybody back i bet if you spent one week playing animal crossing you would be hooked and like you would go full joey in final fantasy 14 on that zombie. <laughs> too bad we'll never find out because I will never play that game. <laughs> <laughs> never say never. Burnsy, is base building fun? I thought it was dumb. I, I really didn't get into it. I uh, it, it Basically, all I would do was I built the things that I would need to use. So the different trees that you sacrifice the stuff to. So like, for instance, if you kill more goblins, you get goblin essence. You put that in there, uh, you take less fire damage. Uh, uh, the gear luck was the was the item sacrifices. Uh, you fight the Nephilim, I think it was. Uh, then that's you put that into there to uh, get uh, uh, more benefits to something else. I can't remember. We didn't fight many of those yet uh, at this point in the game. Uh, so other than that, and then the ability, like the the little cart for me to respec the sharpshooter. I really didn't do much with it. I thought it was annoying that when you get the base, you know, it looks run down and everything like that. But the only way to get rid of that stuff, you can't just go into the edit mode and delete like the huge tree trunk that's taking up half your map. You have to take it and put it in your inventory because, yeah, I want to put that back in here. I'm making my base look great. And I, I want this garbage junk pile. I want eight junk piles in my inventory. That's that's perfect. I love it. I can't delete it ever. It's just always there. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I don't know. I I didn't get into it. I I, I yeah, I, I didn't like it that much. It was a place to go back to. Uh, the fact that you could do a portal to get back to there, wherever you're at, was nice. Uh, even if navigating the portal system was a little wonky at times, uh, I, I think it was nice to at least that made it pretty easy to get back to your base anyway. 
Yeah, I agree with Bernsey. I don't think base building was particularly fun in this game. I tend to dislike it in games in general. There are a couple notable exceptions. Like, I thought it was kind of cool in Dragon Age Origin, Not Dragon Age Origins. Uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. I think at various points there, you're talking to different people that you've met along the ways, and you get a choice to build this kind of structure that'll give you this bonus, or this kind of structure that'll give you another bonus. So, like, cosmetically, it looks really cool, and you get some sort of passive boost from it. I thought that was an interesting iteration of base building. And I also, I love Pillars of Eternity. You get this old rundown base and there's like a whole list of upgrades you can do, but you need certain amounts of money and certain amounts of different resources that you find in the world. And then each one of those gives you a pretty serious upgrade. So in general, I'm pretty, pretty blah on base building, uh, but a couple of games have found ways to make it really interesting. Not Torchlight 3 though. Casey, I'm glad you enjoyed it. You guys didn't even come and see my base. I spent like, Two and a half hours decorated that some Nah, he didn't even show up. Life choices. <laughs> and I did it largely just to sport, spite you, Casey. Like, I knew you were really proud of it, so I just wasn't going to do it. I, I was also worried that if I went there, I wouldn't be able to get back to my base because sometimes like, the portals would just do weird things. And it's like, okay, well, I just can't use my portal now. <laughs> so I was worried about that, too. I once went, uh, I went back to Mora once and Casey had just opened a business in our hometown and like had just opened it. And so I wanted to stop by and see his office. Cause you know, I'm proud of my friend. And like, I walk in and he had literally painted with real paint, like forever paint. He painted Fuck you Tom on his wall. No, I don't want to go see your base in this game, Casey. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> you missed out because in my base, I arranged all those old tree stumps and stuff into a big F.U. Tom in the middle of, of my base as well. <laughs> he did the same thing in, uh, what was that space game? No uh, Man's Sky. No Man's Sky. <laughs> I, I'm just not going to go to your bases, Casey. You hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I've added a note on here to talk about narrative. We already kind of covered it. Like, the story in this game is just neg- negligible. Like, if you're looking for a narrative experience, go play somewhere else. If you want to fight some monsters and a pretty fun thing with your friends this is a pretty good option for that and that leads us into our overall thoughts and takeaways casey did you enjoy this game like what uh what are your last impressions of it i thought the game was really fun especially playing with you guys multiplayer is much more fun than single player just the the friend aspect dungeon diving smashing things getting gear making your guy better um there are so many combinations of skills and weapons and armor options. You could put a ton of hours into this game. I, I don't know, like Tom said, what the replay value is. Like, There's not much point in going back to playing the same character. But if I went back and played again, I would definitely like. I, I would try something else. I, I think uh, my next character would be the complete opposite of my vampire robot. I'd... You know, shoot for an area of effect mage, or you know, maybe poison sharpshooter, just something, something completely different. And and you could with this game, and and that's kind of a neat, neat thing that you can do. You uh, you mentioned that you could put a ton of hours into it. Like, will you? Like, are you ever going back to? The, are you going to play this game again, Casey? <laughs> if I go back, I'm never creating another character. I'll be honest. I I would kind of like to finish the main storyline though with my with my main character and um. I have to totally respect everything with him, though, because, like I said, my main character, I did everything wrong. And I, although I, I guess I could, that's what we talked about. It. it sucks that I can't use my multiplayer character, who is actually really good in, in the single player mode. But I could go through and, and play with him as in the multiplayer realm, just kind of get through it with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to recommend is it, it, you could just do that. And I mean, 
it was negligible how often, unless you're at Travail Point, I don't think you ever ran into Brando's anywhere. Uh, so I, I, I don't see why you couldn't. Mernsey, right. what, what are your lasting takeaways from this game? Uh, so like at first when I was playing it, I, I just, I wasn't sure that it was going to grab me. Uh, cause it just action RPGs are, I'm, I'm learning are really hard to do. Like, like they're easy to create. Okay. Air quotes easy. I mean, putting an action RPG, like the tropes are there, you know how to make it right. Uh, but to make it something that's actually interesting and draws you in is really tough. Uh, and, and there's so many different pieces that have to be done just right to make it a great action RPG game. I wouldn't say this is a great action RPG game. I would say the mechanics are great. The story is poor. I would like to see it through. I haven't deleted it off my Xbox Series S yet because I want to just sort of keep going back and messing with things a little bit. Uh, I would highly recommend people to pick it up on Game Pass. Uh, just know that you're going to run into some bugs because I highly doubt they're going to be fixing them if they haven't fixed them yet. And uh, but but I think it's a fun and worthwhile experience. I, the mechanics I think were a lot better than I thought they were going to be. Uh, they're definitely better than what I've played of Magic Legends and better than Warhammer Chaos Bane uh, as far as like a Diablo clone would be. So I, I think that part of it is good. It's just. I tend to like a narrative to kind of keep pulling me forward and incentivize me. And with that out there, it makes it, it's a little bit more likely I don't come back as often to the game. Sure. And I, I mean, I'm going to poo poo this game pretty hard, but I did enjoy playing it with you guys. It, uh, it was a fun experience and it worked well enough, but I have myriad issues with it. First off, there's so much jank. Like it feels like a free to play game and like they don't hit you up for microtransactions all the times. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Actor games. But if I'm going to play an action RPG, I can play Diablo 3 on my couch with my wife. That would blow this game away a million times over. I could go back. I could play Torchlight 1, which I think is a better experience. I could go back. I could play Torchlight 2 with you guys. And I I didn't get super deep into that game, but I think that's a better like multiplayer experience. So there are things that I like. I really appreciate some of the mechanics and the different builds that you can have for the characters. Plus, the one egregious sin that Torchlight 3 has made that I think every action RPG moving forward has to have is you have to have a roll button to be able to roll through uh, a debris and equipment. And, and you have to have a roll button now. Like Diablo 3 ruined that for everybody else. You have to have a roll button. I disagree. I mean, I like smashing my pottery with like a melee weapon. <laughs> and putting my foot down, you have to have a roll button. All right, you hear, heard it here first. Every action RPG must have a roll button or it will not get the hobby box burn seal of approval. I mean, this is a fun game, but we live in a world with like that's full of fun experiences. Like Game Pass has 100 games on it. We play a different game every single month. When we come back and rank our Game Pass Forever games for the year in the December show, like I'm fairly certain this is going to be near the bottom of the list for me. I mean, thinking to like the things that we've already played on this, like it... Yeah, because a lot of the things we've played have been like super great <laughs> for Game Pass Forever. So, yeah, I, I mean, to, to me, I think I enjoyed the game more than you did, Tom. But, uh, but yeah, that's probably that's probably highly likely, especially looking at what we're playing this next month and a lot of the other things that are out there. Well, speaking of what we're going to be playing next month, 
Our benevolent overlords on Patreon selected Hellblade Sayuna's Sacrifice by Ninja Theory. This is the game that I suggested. I'm super excited. It's been on my radar for quite a while, and uh, I'm glad that I finally have like a compelling reason to play it. Set in the Viking Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Casey, what was it that you wanted to play this month? What's that? What was it that you wanted to play this month? Oh, what did I pick? I picked... Uh... Crap, I don't even remember. He really cared. He cared so much about it that he doesn't remember he picked <laughs> World War Z. That's it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Bernsey. Yes, I yeah. picked World War Z. I wanted to kill zombies. I wanted to see boobs in a video game. And I wanted to do Tetris, and I was the only one that voted for it. <laughs> well, let's, let's drill down on that just a second before I get into the description of Hellblade. First off, I would say that I have a fair knowledge of every video game that gets produced. Like, I have at least some working knowledge of everything that comes out. World War Z is not on my radar at all, which means that it is most likely a hot mess of licensed garbage that would certainly be at the bottom of our list. I have actually heard, uh, like, when the game first came out, uh, reviewers were thought that that's what it was going to be, and it's actually better than they expected. Uh, but it's not like a tier video games from what I heard, but it's, it's better than what people thought it was going to be for being called world war Z, uh, like a licensed game off of a property that like, like in movies anyway, was pretty garbage. <laughs> so Hellblade, like I know it's a strong narrative experience and it's, uh, well, let me read the description and then we'll talk about it and then we'll get the out of here. Cause I don't intend to spend an hour on this segment ever again. <laughs> Set in the Viking Age, a, bro a broken Celtic warrior embarks on a haunting vision quest into Viking hell to fight for the soul of her dead lover. Created in collaboration with neuroscientists and people who experience psychosis, Hellblade Sayuna's Sacrifice will put you deep into Sayuna's mind. What, uh, what intrigues me so much about this is I've heard that like you're fighting these enemies, you're fighting monsters or evil warriors or like something, but like you don't actually know as a player whether they are actually monsters or if it's just Sayuna's perception of it because she's got uh, some sort of psychotic issue. So I'm really, really interested to see how that plays out on the screen. Uh, do you guys usually play games with headphones? Surround sound? Um, uh, not since uh, medium. So, so one thing that they've said um, with this game is that it actually, I think it pops up when you first load it up each time. It recommends to put it on in headphones because like one of the aspects of it, this isn't spoiling anything, is like the voices you hear. Um, with surround sound, that might still be okay if, if your surround sound truly is a good 5.1 or 7.1 system. Um, but otherwise, if you don't have that, they highly recommend wearing headphones to get the full sort of immersive experience that they designed from a sound standpoint. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to check it out. Screw you, Casey. I'm super <laughs> I, excited too. I'm excited too. Uh, I, I'm, it's been a while since we've had a game with a good narrative. So, so I think thanks for that. Yeah, I am pretty great. If you it enjoy ends in me, <laughs> <laughs> that game, if you enjoy this content, please back our show on Patreon. This segment, Game Pass Forever, as well as OIO New Game Plus, are both tied to specific tiers on Patreon. You can back us for as little as $2 a month, but at $10, you get an extra podcast from Tom and Joey. Check it out at patreon.com slash OIO. That is patreon.com slash OIO. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Anything you want to say before Joey and I jump back into Bloodborne? No. Uh, good job, guys. Keep it up. <laughs> Thanks for the thumbs up. We'll talk to you later. In March this year, 
Come on Games released Bloodborne the board game. In this campaign-based tactical action game, players work together to battle monsters and complete objectives before the blood moon rises and wipes out the city of Yarnum. The modular board is tile-based. Each scenario requires certain tiles, which are shuffled together with random location tiles. As players explore, they lay out new tiles, spawning items, enemies, and trigger, triggering campaign events. The campaign is revealed through a numbered deck of cards. When you accomplish things like ending a move in a specific location, you draw a certain numbered card. In one instance, I encountered a little girl and had to decide between killing her or showing mercy. That had massive ramifications later on in the campaign. Each player has a two-sided player mat representing the two configurations for their weapon. Each side of the player mat has three action slots which do a set amount of damage and act at a certain speed level. Players draw a hand of cards from a deck and they play cards onto the open slots on the play mat. This is the core method of attacking and dodging attacks. If all three slots are full, you can't take either action. Each player also has a firearm. If and when you defeat enemies, you gain blood echoes. If you return to the hunter's dream with echoes, you cash them in to upgrade the cards in your deck. The base game comes with four campaigns. If I was a better researcher, I would have looked up what this was on Board Game Geek as a rating. Uh, let's start with what stood out to us from this game. Brian, again, we'll go to you with kind of the outsider's perspective. Uh, the sheer difficulty of it. I I can't really think of too many board games off the top of my head that I found this hard. So you really only get, I think it's six hit points, It's which isn't much because most enemies can hit you before between two and three. But every time that you decide to go back to the Hunter's Dream to recharge the hit points, the game progression moves forward. So it, it creates a really pressing and very uh, kind of like tense tempo to the game. And I feel honestly bad. If this if you took the four guys playing this game and say we we're like a sculling team, right? So we're rowing the boat in unison. I was the hole in the bottom of the boat because, like, I died more times than I can count. I dragged everybody down with me, and I'm really sorry for that even now. Well, two thoughts. First, this game scored an 8.1 on Board Game Geek, so significantly higher than the card game. And specifically to Brian, like, yeah, there were moments when we all struggled, Brian. Like, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. Like, I feel like they did such a masterful job this game is also designed by eric lang same as the bloodborne card game but they did such a masterful job capturing like the like the heart and soul of bloodborne that had made this game exceptionally frustrating it was it was really tough i i think one of the most brilliant uh aspects of design that they made with this game is it, it mimicked the video game so much that when you're getting to the end you realize how much you screwed up everything you did to get to this point and how you failed already. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, it's like, it's like, it was so perfect. Our first... We lost 30 minutes ago. We didn't even know it. <laughs> That's exactly what happened in our first attempt. We tried playing the first campaign. We got a ways into it. We were easily more than an hour into it. And we're like, oh, well, we're screwed. Do we just call it here, start over again and try again? And we did. And then we beat that first section of the campaign only to have a very similar experience with the second leg of the campaign. Yeah, it's like we got to that point in Chapter 2 where, okay, I don't know how we could have done this. It's like we had to make all these different decisions in Chapter 1 to set ourselves up to actually have any sort of success in Chapter 2, it seemed like. It was crazy. 
And the question was, had we made the different decisions in chapter one, would we have beaten chapter one as smoothly as we did the second time that we went through it? So it's just like, where's where's the dynamic? You Obviously, you need to know what's coming. There's no argument about that. But there's, what, four segments to each campaign? We got through, we didn't even get through two. Yeah, we got wiped out probably three quarters of the way through the second leg of the campaign, the second of four legs. Yeah. I mean, it's very much like Bloodborne. You play, you learn, you die, you reset, you try it again. Unfortunately, in Bloodborne, those runs are taking like five minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes. This is over an hour sunk into a board game day with three of your friends. And like, I love Bloodborne, but this model is a little rough for somebody who only gets together for board gaming with his friends once every couple of months, less so in a pandemic. Yeah, I think that's the, I think that's a problem. Like if this came out in 2019... When we don't have a pandemic facing us in like, and it's like, well, we could get together fairly regularly and play. Like, this is the type of thing that like, if you were playing in a weekly or bi-weekly Gloomhaven game and you finish Gloomhaven, this is a different style of campaign game that you could play. Cause it's like, okay, we made it this far. We screwed up. We could game plan for the next week or two and say, okay, how are we going to approach this again and see if we can't make it through uh, all the way through chapter two and get to chapter three and see how we screwed everything else up to try to finish chapter three. You know, I, I, I think that's, what's really interesting about uh, how it's doing it is they don't have to have like a hundred campaigns like Gloomhaven has. You just make that stuff more replayable because it's so hard. I wonder how easy it'll be to carry, like pick up from one campaign leg to the next between play sessions. Like, I don't know if we'd be able to box it up and then pick up campaign leg two. So are we looking at a four plus hour commitment just to get through the campaign if everything breaks right? And on top of that, we're going to have to play through almost all of them at least twice. Well, in some cases, we'll be playing through the first campaign likely four times. We got to the end of the second campaign and it wasn't like it was kind of close. There was nothing that we could do about it at the end, and it started to dawn on us pretty quickly once we realized this final boss, just how boned we were, and we were kind of a melancholy group because we were just, we we're like, there's nothing. Like, everyone try to swing. Everyone misses. Time marches on. Okay, game over. Like, it just... It was demoralizing there at the end. <laughs> and for us, it was particularly hard because, like, the end of the board game day, and this is the first time I've played board games with my friends in over a year. So it's like, yeah. it was a bummer of a note to end on. Like, I love you guys. It was you, the three of us, plus our friend Pat, and it was an awesome day getting together and playing games with masks on. Yeah, I, I, I think that's just what makes it difficult, though, is it's like, okay, well, when's the next time we're going to be able to play a game? Do I really want to spend it doing this game again and probably ending in frustration again or do something I know we're going to at least we know how to handle and we're going to have fun with. Um, I think that is maybe an uphill battle with it, but if you find the right group, kind of like if you're in the right mentality for the video game, you're really going to latch onto this and you're going to have a lot of fun with it. Very true. Let's dive into come some of the mechanics. I thought the exploration felt like betrayal at House on Haunted Hill with the drawing tiles and then the tile has this icon on it so you lay these items on it or you lay these enemies on it. How did you guys uh, glom on to the exploration system? Did you like it? Did you not like it? I thought there was a lot of excitement particularly when we know that so as you're playing this game you're, you're drawing more oh what's the word I want to look for they're not exactly missions but they're more objectives you're drawing them out of this deck and each one leads to the next one and the next one and the next one 
And at some points, we know that we have to discover certain areas. So it gets really exciting when I think there's like eight total t tiles that we're drawing from. Like, come on, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And you draw it, and everyone lets out like the joy is this is amazing. So the there's a little bit of rand randomness to it. And then there's just the sheer danger of it. Because when you walk into an area, there are some areas where if you take more than one step into the area and you start drawing aggro, uh, you're dead. So to go back to Joe's thought around Cathedral Ward, where it's like, I'm not going to attack anything. I'm just going to view it here from a distance. That's <laughs> we, we had to genuinely use that to just keep ourselves alive. Because, again, with six hit points, yes, exploring is great. But one, one really solid hit, and you're probably going to die on a second one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite moments revolves exactly around that. Pat was in the Hunter's Dream, and he was able to come out of a lamp, and like there are a couple enemies on the board, and he thought that he should do something, and it wasn't go and engage the enemies. And the three of us were all convinced that he'd be fine, <laughs> and we eventually talked him into it. And, of course, he goes to fight the monsters. There's only one bad thing that could happen out of the three possible outcomes. Each enemy... The enemies have a deck, and you draw whether it's a basic attack or a special attack or an ability. And like as long as it, they didn't draw, I think it was the ability, Pat would have been fine. Pat would be able to kill the monsters, and we'd get the power up and win the game. Of course, they draw the ability. Pat dies, and the whole game just unravels from there. <laughs> the best part of that, Scott instantly is like, Pat, you screwed us! You screwed us, Pat! This guy got bludgeoned with peer pressure into a scenario he didn't want to go, gets murdered, and then Tom throws him under the bus for the decision-making that he created. Oh, very like, Tom-esque. I would like to point out that uh, Tom called me Scott there, so Scott, you and me are the same, my friend. <laughs> you just called You just called Brian Tom. <laughs> <laughs> We're all confused who we are. <laughs> yeah. And now Brian's video is frozen with one arm held up and incredibly... <laughs> Well, I don't know if you're enjoying this podcast or not, but we're having a whale of a time putting it together for you, so thank you for listening. Let's uh, let's move on to the combat system, which I think is where this game absolutely shines. I think that Eric Lane came up with the most remarkable combat system, and I'll just recap it again real briefly. Each player has a player mat with a set number of action slots on it, and you play cards from your hand to cover up those slots to do different things. Basically, attacks will happen at a fast, a medium, or a slow pace, and the fastest attack goes first. So if you have the Saw Cleaver, which has a 3 speed, you can beat any attack coming at you with a 1 or a 2 speed. So if you can kill the enemy before he gets to attack, you're not going to take any damage. You get that Blood Echo, and you have helped your team significantly. Joe, you know, I had it, the, the, the weapon dynamic I thought was a really cool thing because I believe, Joe, you had the saw cleaver, didn't you? Because you were getting a bunch of quick attacks in. Yep. I had the hunter's axe, which is the slowest weapon in the game. And the problem was in so many of these situations, enemies had – you either have a one speed, two speed, or three speed. Three speed is actually like the slowest. One speed is the fastest. And there was a million different times. My, my typical speed is two or three, which means I'm guaranteed to get hit. But they had done a little neat uh, uh, caveat to the Hunter's Axe where I could hit somebody and gain a life point back. Unfortunately, a lot of the times I was just taking more damage than I was recovering. But the, the, the dynamic shifted dramatically based on what weapon your character had. Just a quick semantic thing. You had the, uh, the speeds flipped. One was the slowest and three was the fastest. Oh, my apologies. Yep. The more arrows, the better. Burnsy, you play a lot of heavy games. What did you think of this combat mechanic, and where does it rank against some of your favorite combat mechanics? 
So I, I I really like the whole the the trick weapon and flip the whole thing over in order to be able to lay cards again, and I think it the like the way that you upgrade the cards that you can play in your deck. So you have your eight cards that you shuffle and you take a hand of of is it three or four? I'm trying to remember four, uh, and then you play those down, and then that's what you do on that spot. Uh, and I think it was really neat how you could try to retool that deck towards like it seemed like each character had like two or three different builds that you can do uh so so for mine it was all about uh doing more damage as long as you were faster than the ones that you were the guys you were fighting against and so just trying to stack on as much of that attack as possible uh just to just really hit them hard and then you could get other bonus things so uh, i we got a uh uh, rune that I was able to put into one of my spaces that permanently did an extra attack there too. And so I was, I was just a wrecking crew at some points uh, with those things. Uh, I think also the other interesting thing is when you're getting some of this loot or the runes, like you're figuring out as a group, who's going to be the best person to have this. And so there's times, okay, Brian's always going to go late. So it makes sense for him to get this room because that's going to help him uh, and, and so on and so forth and work that out as a group. One of the things that I forgot to mention when setting this game up is it's completely cooperative, so you get to choose what like order everyone acts in. So everyone, we work together, you decide who's going to go first, and then they can do as many things as they have cards and spaces on their player mat to actually do. And so like setting up these optimal builds is so, so crucial to team success. And I think I know that I wound up with a lot of upgrades. Maybe that was one of the ways we struggled as a team was not getting everyone upgraded enough. And I didn't understand the dynamic of the importance of staggering. So one thing that you can do in this game, you can actually play an ability. You can dodge their attacks, which is obviously a very important. You negate the damage. But you can also stagger them, which basically means if you hit them, they do not act. Unfortunately, I think you have to be faster than them yeah. to make that work. So it, it didn't work out in my favor. But it seemed to be great for Joe. Yeah, yeah. Staggering was huge. That was my, my whole mechanic was all around staggering. Mine was more dodging. Like, I also had a fast weapon. I forget which one I had. Maybe it was just a sword. Don't recall. Uh, but mostly I was attack before they attack and then leave a spot open to dodge. Uh, the overall upgrade system was super interesting. You're buying new cards and phasing out the eight cards in your deck. Uh, did I miss any of the core mechanics? Was was Were there any other parts of this game that we wanted to talk about before uh, talking strategy and overall impressions? Uh, so, I mean, I think, so when we were talking about like the exploration a little bit, I think one of the other interesting like situations that we got into was when we unlocked one of the objectives and it was basically, oh, we got to find Odon Chapel and we got to get, we got to get this person to Odon Chapel and we haven't found that yet. So it's like, oh crap, well, we got to start revealing areas uh, to try to find this place. And luckily the next place we opened was right next to there and was Odon Chapel. Uh, but that ended up like actually kind of hurting us. We never even completed that because it became like this monster nest. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like, oh, we're lucky. Oh no, we're not. <laughs> the game giveth, the game taketh away. I think Pat sacrificed himself in that room. He did. He did. <laughs> we put Pat in a remarkable number of positions to die. Way to be a team player, Patrick, you gullible son of a gun. <laughs> the best part for me during the game was when he was asking Tom a question. He was 
about like what is in his best interest to survive. And I remember looking at Pat just dumbfounded, like, why are you asking Tom, of all people, what's the most viable outcome for you to come out of this thing living? This is a terrible decision. I disagree. I have a finely tuned survival instinct. Like, I can run home from near anywhere in Mankato. But that's your survival instinct. So the, the things that you'd be telling Pat to do are just about your survival, not his character's survival. Yeah, I think, points, Joe. I think Pat made the right call. <laughs> uh, I think the other neat thing is when you flip your weapon, so each side of your weapon has a special ability also. Uh, that was one thing that tripped me up a couple of times because I primarily used one side of mine, which was the closed saw cleaver, uh, which is a lot like in the actual game too, which is kind of ironic. Um, and so one of the times when that tripped me up was when I'd flipped it and I was filling in that and I was like, oh, and then I'm going to do this because it's, oh no, I'm on the other side. So it's a different special ability. And so I just died. <laughs> and so there's there's a lot of things that you do have to keep your head sort of wrapped around, uh, which is a little tricky, especially the first time through the game, I think. Yeah, this game, uh, similar to like Arkham Horror, it would be really helpful to play with someone who had played before and had feel for it. But then on the downside, like they already know how to get through the campaigns. And so like, I guess that would suck a lot of the fun out of it too. Like just be ready for a bummer of a time and just put a whole bunch of time into it and bang your head in the wall for a long time. Just like Bloodborne, just take your beating for a while, learn a little bit, take it a step, learn a little bit. And I, it, one thing that we didn't kind of touch on about just kind of the aesthetic of the game, I thought that the the board tile pieces were pretty detailed. They look really cool. I Did you guys like the figurines? The figures, like the actual the monsters, I thought those were really cool with how much detail they had. Yeah, they were pretty cool, except for the one that broke. That was kind of a bummer. Oh, yeah, the guy that came off the base, right? Yep, one guy came off the base. We're also missing at least two cards from the game, so it's the first time I've ever had components missing from a game, so that was kind of a drag. Uh, hopefully, Yeah, can... go to a deck of cards. <laughs> yep, yeah, we, 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 we replaced two Hunter's Pistols with standard playing cards. It's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it, it, sadly, it happens uh, a lot more often than you would think it would happen with board games. But as long as you contact the company, they'll, they're usually really good about sending replacement parts. Yeah, here's hoping. So what other strategies did we employ? One thing I wrote down that I thought was funny was I tried to trick Pat into getting killed. Not entirely true. I didn't actually actively try to kill Pat, but it seemed like every time I gave him advice, he died. I think similar to the similar to the video game i think a lot of it was also just knowing how the monsters move so in the game the monsters are only going to move if you are on a so if you're looking at the monsters being in a tile then you form a plus sign so the tile directly north and south and east and west of that they'll move to those if if one of the hunters is there if one of the hunters isn't there they just stay in place and so part of it was a lot like the video game where how do I maneuver around things to not aggro the things I don't want to aggro, but to pull the things that I do need to aggro. In the second chapter, we had to we had to spawn a certain amount of beasts in spaces. And so in order to do that, you didn't want to get swarmed by other ones too. So part of the game was, okay, some people need to clear out this area so other people can spawn the things here and then get the the materials from that to take it to the graveyard where we had to had to turn them in basically and so it was kind of this 
like working together as a group to figure out how do we clear things out, knowing that eventually you're going to get a blood moon and everything's going to respawn anyway. <laughs> and then how do we handle that? And because that's the other interesting mechanic is every time you someone goes back to the hunter's dream, it moves closer and closer to being a blood moon, which respawns the entire board. So you have to be really you have to be really deliberate about who goes back when and who tries to survive as long as humanly possible without going back to the hunter's dream. And the hunter's dream is so mandatory from A, it's really, unless you have, say, like the axe that I was using, it was the only place to replenish hit points. B, it was the only place to buy upgrades. So you're forced to go back and you're forced to go back fairly often, which just keeps pushing the tempo of that game faster. So not only are you playing a game where you're essentially trying to make sure that you have put things in position enough to be able to kind of finish the outcome of that campaign, you're working against a clock that you're actively forcing to go faster because you're just trying to recover enough to move into the next area. It's it's a this cool tension that it, it's cool in hindsight. In the moment, it sucks. You're like, <laughs> I'm actively making this worse for everyone around me. But like looking back on how, how they use that little dynamic to add that extra pressure to the game, pretty pretty insightful. And I think that uh, crippled us a little bit because in the first campaign, the one that we had to basically reset, like I lost at least one blood echo when I died and somebody else lost a blood echo. So we weren't upgrading our characters and we didn't feel like we were progressing enough. So we got real cautious. It's like, oh, I got a blood echo. I got to get back to the dream now. And I think that's one area for improvement for us as a group is like we have to maximize our blood echoes and our trips back to the hunter's rest. Another thing I noticed while playing this game, much like the video game, speed kills. Like, you have to be faster than the enemies. I don't think I would enjoy playing with Brian's slow ass axe. Oh, and I, I should have been better about using the ability to rally. So basically, my I should be able to... I think how the build was supposed to work is I'm supposed to trade most of the time. Because if I trade, I at least get a hit point back. And rally, by the way, what that means, and this even goes back to the Bloodborne video game, when you get hit in the game... You, you lose life, but there's this little white cursor that travels with your health bar. It doesn't go all the way back to how much you lost, which means that if you can start to attack your enemy before that cursor moves, you get that life back. It incentivizes the player to be aggressive even when injured, like your will essentially, to get life back. That dynamic in this game would have been more useful if I could have found a better way to fully use it. Um, but I, I just... I didn't have the kind of forethought to do so, and my character really suffered because of it. And when your character suffered, we all suffered. Thanks for dragging us down, Brian. You're right. Hole in the boat. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last thought that I had on strategy, I just I don't feel like we ever coalesced into a strategy, and maybe it's because we haven't played board games together a lot. Maybe it's because we just weren't particularly good at this game. I don't know what it was, but I feel like... Uh, with a little more mental preparation, maybe we could be more effective. And maybe that's just like how Bloodborne works. Like you need those mental reps. Like you need to get bashed in the face to learn how to get good. Yeah. I, I, I seriously think that if we as a group approached it again, played the same characters and like started from scratch again, like we would have a better way to approach that first chapter to set us up better for the second chapter. We might be hosing ourselves later on, but I think it would help. 
What if we were to drop Brian for somebody? Like, what if we drop Brian, bring in Casey? Do you think that would increase our odds for success? Uh, I mean, Casey would find a way to break the game um, in some way, shape, or form, but he would sit for he would sit for so long to figure that out that we would we would just be waiting on him to figure out how he breaks this game. <laughs> just so we're clear, Casey has a lot of kids, so he probably couldn't come because the weekend wouldn't work out. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Brian's still in, but you know, if we do accessibility see- is power, Tom. <laughs> it sure is. And I think the way that we get around Casey's deep think is to have him play it once like the night before and then we'll all go to sleep and then come back the next day to play and he will have just stayed up all night learning how to min-max things. I've heard about this. It is Casey's superpower. Like he can break games like nobody else. Uh, Do we have any other thoughts on strategies that we employed or anything we think would be helpful for new players? I think so. My biggest thing, because with the saw cleaver, it innately had that stagger ability. I think the one thing that I tried to do was just every upgrade I did had something to do with stagger. I think that made me two one note where I didn't have something other than stagger. And especially when I flipped it and the other side of my trick weapon didn't have as much to do with stagger, I think that was a hindrance for me. So I needed to have some other counter to that too. Uh, in order to be able to have like this one-two punch that I needed instead of just being one note the entire time. And I think that's another phenomenal design like choice. A lot of games reward you for leaning hard into one tree, like the beloved tech track and tapestry. And I think in Bloodborne, you really need a bag of tricks to be ready for anything that could be thrown at you. It was consistent amongst our group that when we flipped the cards, we didn't know what to do. And that became pretty clear as the game went on. We all had that one side that we had a general idea, look, I'm going to hit this. I'm going to be more proficient at this. And then we'd run out of like spots on that side and flip and everyone went limp. And it was just like, oh my God. And we're off to the hunter's dream to clear the card. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think the other thing that we picked up fairly quickly, um, I think in our second go of the first chapter was like, really keeping track of the monster cards and what's left in them. So it's like, oh, they only have basic attacks, so we know what they're going to be doing. So we have to take advantage of that as much as possible. Or, oh, they have their ability. We want to try to get that ability out against this type of monster because this monster is really going to wreck our face. And so I think that's another really, like, an interesting strategy to use is to really keep track of who's going to be using what ability cards and trying to trying to manipulate that as much to your to your advantage as the players as possible. I think another thing we could have done was think of it more like Bloodborne, the video game. A lot of times with games, especially with like miniatures on a board, like you want to fight every monster, you want to kick every, you want to take on everything. And I think exploration needed to be more of a focus for us. I think we needed to get all the tiles uncovered so that we knew where we had to go for different stuff. And I think. Uh, Maybe we got bogged down in the combat because that was super fun. It was awesome mm-hmm. fighting monsters. And I think maybe that just drug us down a little bit. Well, and I think the other thing also is that um, you have the... So each chapter, you have three different objectives that you can complete. But at least the ones that we played, you only need to do two of the three in order to complete. 
I do think that if we were to approach it again, we want to complete all three of those because we need as many things in our bag of tricks as possible in order to be able to succeed later on, especially seeing as how one of those was a firearm. And I'm guessing maybe the other one was too. And the beast that we fought in chapter two was all about using firearms to affect them. And that's where we were struggling because most of us were still just using hunter's pistols, um, which were okay, but we needed to have a lot more firearms that we would be able to manipulate that thing even more. And I think that's one of the other aspects of it, going back and approaching it, knowing that we need that for the end of chapter two, um, we would be able to build towards that a little bit more. And, and, and like, I think part of that is trying to accomplish all the objectives as efficiently as possible, which leans into probably not just attacking everything that's there, even if they just respawned, but really focusing on exploring and getting to the point that you need to get to, to do what you need to do. There, there is a dynamic that we have to, that we should have been better at balancing between risk, combat, and then pushing that timeline forward. And we, we never really figured out that, the, the, that, that, correct tension between those kind of three dynamics. We were so scared most of the time about dying that we go back to the hunter's dream and we just kept putting more pressure on ourselves. Hey, we've, we've done a quarter of this map. We're halfway through the timeline. We got to go now. Mm -hmm. And that, that just, it caused us to make a lot of errors. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've talked a lot about like how this game challenged us and how we struggled. What, uh, what are our takeaways for it? Where does this game rank for us? I mean, I really, really enjoyed this game. I think playing through it a second time, now knowing a better understanding, just like Bloodborne, of how the game works, I think it, we would have a lot more fun with it. I still enjoyed it. I still think the combat was super cool, even though I felt like my character was kind of getting kneecapped because I really didn't have a, a cohesive strategy of what I should have been doing. But watching how much fun Joe was having, having just made my eyes. <laughs> um, that said, I think I think it's a it's one of the more complex games that I have played as far as board game goes, and, and understanding that there's a lot of priorities in a lot of different areas. And I really enjoyed that because I don't feel like one area kind of you know blanketed everything else. Everything required attention, and it needed it kind of equally. I love to hear you say that, Brian, because I know you love those, like the world of Bloodborne, and this is this game is a lot to wrap your head around. This is a heavy game. There, this is mm -hmm. not a light experience. So I'm glad you had a blast with it. I talked with Pat, who's also a heavy gamer, but had no experience with Bloodborne beyond playing the card game with us earlier this day, and he really enjoyed it too. He thought that the combat was super fun, and like he loved. He put it up there with some of our favorite games. Like I asked him if he'd rather play this or Memoir 44, and he leaned towards this. Interesting. That that's that's saying a lot for Pat because I know he loves him some Memoir Forty Four and just rolling those grenades as much as possible. Uh, I I know I really enjoyed this game. I think I, I think it's I think it has replayability um, because I think it's going to take you multiple attempts to just finish one of those entire scenarios, and then there's four in the box, and I'm sure. You know, it's it's Simon Games. They're going to be creating more and more and more of those scenarios uh, oh, as time goes on, too, I'm sure. They already created. There's like 15 expansions available. Oh, see, there you go. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's Simon or come on. They, they they've bounced back and forth between pronunciations now too many times for me to keep track of it. But uh, come on's known for that uh, for better or for worse. I, I think 
like if you had a group that really got into this game and played this regularly, like you would just eat up all those things. And like we said before, the minis are great. The art just in general on the cards and everything is really good. Uh, I think like, like it's, it's proof that Pat hasn't played the game, the video game and still really got into the game. I think they just did a phenomenal job with it. I'll also add that this game cost a hundred dollars new. And that is not a price point that I buy many games at. And I have no regrets at all. Like I've, I love this game. Bernsey, you like to classify things as buy it or rent it. In this case, would you say buy this game, play a friend's copy? Like where does it, where does the value shine through for you? Yeah, I, so I would definitely, because since it is a pretty, it's a relatively steep buy-in. Like in the world of board games, it's kind of in the middle. Like I would say $100 is kind of like the $70 standard now for video games. Uh, it's like $100 is like the new standard for board games with miniatures. I would still recommend playing it first with someone before you know for sure if it's what you want to jump into or not. I don't think it's going to be for everybody. Some people want to just relax and have fun. I Like I still had, I had a lot of fun with this game. I don't think it's the type of game you could just relax and enjoy yourself with. Well, Brian, you're uh, the least hardcore out of the board gamers here. I don't mean that to sound as an insult, but like, you play the least heavy games. Do you think you would have enjoyed this experience if it wasn't wrapped up in a world and like lore that you loved? I think that there was enough, there was enough interesting mechanics going on with the game, and there was enough interesting, almost like randomness exploration to it. I would have, I would have enjoyed this regardless. Um, the fact that it was Bloodborne makes it a little bit more alluring to me. I am extremely impressed by the developers of this game that they were able to capture some of the most important aspects of the video game, exploration, learning. Um, and it's it's like, Joe, you, you said it really well. It's not something that it's like a leisurely play. I don't know if you guys have at any, at any point playing Bloodborne feel like you're relaxed. You don't, no. you don't feel like you're, you're enjoying it. You feel really tense for most of the time that we're playing and they nailed it with this. And it, it's, ah, it's just, it's, it's just, it's really impressive to me. Really impressive. So I felt relaxed after we played that first chapter again and beat it. And we're like, Oh yeah, we dominated that. We're, we're so good at this game now. And it was just this huge false sense of security. Like we made so many mistakes that we found out later on. And it's just like, Oh, we're idiots. New Game Plus. Essentially, we just went through New Game Plus. I wonder how much fun it'll be to replay the campaigns after we beat it. Like, once we fine-tune everything, get a run-through, and crush that first campaign, and move on to the second. Like, I wonder if we would enjoy going back to the first campaign. Do we think that there's enough randomness to how that game operates that it would create a unique experience a second? Well, it wouldn't even be second. Conceivably, we're going to be playing this thing you know, 16 times regardless trying to get through it. Is there enough randomness to create a new experience, even though we know the campaign's objectives? So the only randomness that would be there would be where the rooms would be located. Um, otherwise, the same events happen in the same rooms and you need to get the people to the same places from the other place. Now, where they're going to be oriented on the map is going to be different. Uh, so then where monsters are going to be spawning is going to maybe be different, but you still know what you need to do. Now, granted, that's kind of like how the video game works. Like, you know, 
for, I mean, the same monsters are in the same spot pretty much all the time. So it's a little bit different that way. It might still be interesting because then at that point you're like, okay, we're going to try to min max this. We're going to try to do this as fast as we can. Uh, and, and we need to make sure we get this weapon and we need to get this item and we need to do this. Everybody needs to upgrade this many times before we get on to chapter two. So I think there could be a way where you get into like min maxing each character, uh, or, or trying to like optimize certain things, uh, when approaching it again. Uh, so I think there would be some replayability. Uh, it's not going to be completely random. You're going to know where everything's going, what beast you're going to face at the end of the chapter. Like all that stuff's going to be static. It's not going to be randomized. But I still think it would be interesting uh, if you're looking at it of trying to perfect the game, maybe. All right. So Brian, Joey, Pat, and me are getting together. We have one full day to play any game on the planet. Brian, what game are we going to play? Any board game or any video game? Any game on the planet, my friend. That's a, that's a really good question. It, it is, it is. But for me, I mean, if if it's four people and you and you want to have a good time, it's it's gonna be Smash Brothers. That's that's <laughs> that's the one I take, and it's not because it's one I play so much. It's a game where, depending on who you choose and what level you do choose, in the, the again skill level, everybody else involved, it's chaotic, it's fun, and like seven hours goes by pretty quick. So I'll I'll, I'll take Smash, which is probably not too far out on the yeah. limb. It's it's four people and Brian's going to have a good time. I just want to make sure that the way he said that your was Brian's going to have a good time because he's going to have this mop up on three noobs the entire time. I just care who Tom is. That's all that matters <laughs> to me. Hey, hey, I'm going to defecate all over that parade. Hey, Pat, go stand next to Brian. It'll be fine. You'll be fine. You won't die, Pat. <laughs> Bernsey, what's your choice? Um, I, I so... Like, I, I honestly, as 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 probably unsurprising as this is to anybody, would say Gloomhaven. Yeah, so probably like Jaws of the Lion. So because Pat's, well, actually, all of us have played it before. So maybe we wouldn't even need to start necessarily with the starter pack. But yeah, I, I would say Gloomhaven just because I know it and I really enjoy that. And I think that's something that if we're going to play for eight hours, we could get through six scenarios maybe if we're really pushing it. Um, and we all know what we're doing, uh, that would probably be my choice. I wish you guys could physically see the pain on Joe's face to pick one. It's like it's like trying to decide which kid you get rid of. He's just, he looked hurt. It's, he looked hurt. <laughs> Gloomhaven was a great choice, Burns, and like I could have a lot of fun playing an entire day of Gloomhaven and just focusing on that. That's a little bit harder for me because so much falls on you to run it. Like, I feel bad when you have to be, like, super-duper rules guy. For me, give me Bloodborne. And it's not just because this is a Bloodborne show. Like, I loved this experience. And I loved... It was a little bit of a downer to, like, get our ass kicked on the second campaign and then have to pack it up and then go home. But part of that disappointment was because we couldn't just, like, fire it up, do it again, and do it right this time. Like, there are a lot of great games out there. And there's a lot of awesome ways to spend your time. But for me... This game is right on up there with all of them. I, I loved the Bloodborne board game. They took a medium that that would have been really hard to recreate in the media that they chose to recreate it in, and they crushed it. They just crushed it. Yeah, they did. Hats off to Eric Lang. He is apparently a phenomenal designer. Like If we could start that yep. day with like two games of Quarriors and then just Bloodborne the rest of the way, that would be perfect. perfect. I, I, I mean, I... 
I, I really enjoyed it too. And I would not like, I wouldn't turn down any of the games that we brought up, to be honest, I would play seven, eight hours of smash. I would suck. I would still suck by the end of it. I'd maybe have one lucky game where I win, but the rest of them I would suck, but I'd still play anything. I, I like getting together and playing with people. I would not play eight hours of smash with Brian, not for just about <laughs> anything on earth. Like if it just doesn't sound appealing to me, there is one thought that I want to read out of our, um, discord group here. If you guys can carry the show for just a minute. Oh, here it is. Our friend Mike said in Discord, we asked about general feedback on Bloodborne leading up to the show, and Mike said, Bloodborne is kind of a fascinating From Software game. In the Souls games before it, and the Kingsfield games before them, From was filtering classic Western-style fantasy tropes, stone castles, knights in armor, etc., through Japanese sensibilities, which was not new. But in Bloodborne, they went for a completely different vibe. Victorian-era England crossed with Lovecraftian horror filtered through Japanese sensibilities. While the game structure was the same as Souls with the bonfire equivalents, respawning enemies, memorable boss battles, and obscure storytelling, the change in environments and eras combined with the abandonment of the standard class archetypes gave Bloodborne a radically different feel. Mike loves Souls games, and it sounds like Bloodborne is right at the top for him. I was going back and forth with him in the chat about like my feelings on it, and it was super clear that he was really knowledgeable about it. So that I reserve, like I reverted to name calling and ended it. But I feel like I won. <laughs> I think we all feel like you won. Do you guys have any closing thoughts on Bloodborne before we cut the show here? Like I am, I'll, I'll start us off here. I just want to thank our friend Scott because he really pushed for us to start playing this video game as a group. And that's how Brian got into it. That's how Brandon got into it. That's how I got into it. That's how OIO co-host Munch got into it. And like, it just happened that while we were playing and enjoying that game so much, the Bloodborne board game released, we had a hole in the schedule and everything lined up and here we are. So Scott, thank you for pushing for us to play this game. I have been exceptionally frustrated at times, but overall I have loved this experience. I do question a little bit it's a game that is so easy to bounce off of i don't know i i honestly think that the group mentality helped us get through the game brandon who we had on a little bit earlier left he left it for dead brandon put it outside he was done with it he left it by the dumpster and then we're all playing and he's like well f you guys i'm having a good time too i'm, I'm gonna go get that thing and dragged it back in his house and kept playing <laughs> It's it's this thing where you kind of keep working through it, and when you start to get competent at it, that's where the hook starts. And it's got a cool gameplay loop. Um, we're really fortunate that we played it with a group of people that we talk to every single day, and that drove us to keep playing. And without that drive, I can see why a lot of people could play this once we be done. Yeah, I totally agree. Like having someone to talk about all the weird stuff going on was great. The only downside to playing in the group is like my playtime is limited. So you guys all were like way out ahead of me. And I kind of had the aliens spoiled. So like the first time I ran into a jellyfish in the woods, I'm like, oh, okay. Instead of like the what the f is going on experience that it could have been. Oh, but now you guys ruined the aliens for me. No, I'm just kidding. My, I was talking to Brent about that. My, my other friend that's playing it, uh, separate from this group. Uh, so I, I, to be honest, I, I've heard so many people on like podcasts I listen to and just in the gaming industry in general, just talk like nonstop about how much they love Bloodborne. And 
if there's anything that you guys know about me is I tend to end up having a somewhat contrarian viewpoint to games that people just emphatically love. Uh, and it's not by design. So what was your take on Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild? It, it's fine. It's a fine game. What was your take uh, I don't on... think it would be as lauded if it what didn't have Legend of, the Z- of Zelda in the title. If it was just a other game with the same mechanics, it would fall by the wayside, I think. I would argue that a lot of games would struggle without their lineage and their main character and like the history and nostalgia that go with them. Z7 sucks if not for all the neckbeards humping their Tifa pillows. <laughs> I, I think Final Fantasy VII is a great game, but uh, and and I mean Red Dead Redemption. I bounced off or two. I bounced off that game also. Open world games in general, I struggled to get into, and so I I don't know. I feel like I end up having a contrarian viewpoint to games. So coming into Bloodborne, I was super worried that I was going to fall into that same mode and just be like. I get why people like it. It's not for me. I'm never going to get into it. Uh, but that's not the case. I've had to approach it differently because like, I've I've actually learned to like the game so much that I don't want to ruin it for myself. Um, and so I've, I, I can, I get it. Like I can see why people say this is the greatest game of all time or why it's the best of the PS4 Xbox one generation. Like I can so totally get that because so many of the things they do are right. It's too bad that like with just a little bit more handholding or just a little bit more signposting or explanation at the start, it could just get more people to get past that hump uh, that it could like really transcend that. And then people could like unequivocally say like, this is the best game of that generation and possibly one of the top 10 games of all time. Like I think if it got past that hump, it would be a lot easier for people to get on the train with it. So I think it's phenomenal. I'm, I, I, I'm loving what I'm playing of it so far. It's going to be a slow play for me because I don't want to like just destroy it for myself. And so I'm hoping that by the end of the year, I will actually finish it and have a full perspective on everything that happens with it. Uh, but it's an amazing game. I am so surprised of how like just how good it is. I'm so glad that you got into it, Burns, because like hearing your take on Demon Souls, like I just thought maybe Souls games weren't for you, and that's fine. Not everyone's, not every game is going to be for everyone, but I'm really glad that you got into it, especially after I made you play it for this show. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm glad you're glad. <laughs> well, that is our 36th episode of Outside is Overrated, Bloodborne. Next month, the three of us will return to talk about Borderlands. I think it is the first time the same three hosts have been on back-to-back together. We did it. We finally did it. Go team. We're going to be talking about Borderlands. We'll break down Tales from the Borderlands, which Brian is not excited at all for, and Borderlands 3. Thank you very much for listening. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Joey at Hobbybox Burns and at Brian Camille, don't bother him on the internet. I'm Tom Sidlachik at Tom Sidlachik OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. That sounded nothing like a fart, by the way. Now, if you guys want to grow up, we can do a podcast about Bloodborne, huh? What do you say?
Is this where we play all the explosions? It's like, Brian, like that. You don't listen to the show very much, do you, Brian? That's my intro. Play that back in twice as loud. Okay. Will do. Start with number five. Brian, are you looking at the show notes for chance? I'm looking at the script. I just was going to see how long you were going to do that for because you're going to edit this out anyways. Not anymore. I'm not, my friend. All right. 